Hello again, everybody, and welcome to episode 44 of Trial by Fire. Um, this was a really fun episode to do, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, me and Jeremias have sat down and watched a few survival movies, uh, or more specifically movies that pertain to uh, survival situations. And there's some bushcraft elements in there, of course, and some, yeah, just kind of, I suppose, touching on some of the general themes of the movie as well. Um, and the narrative and the cinematography and all that kind of stuff. So it was a really fun one, and I think this is probably the longest episode we've ever had so if you can get through this one then i uh hats off to you i think it works out or somewhere around two and a half hours um which as i as far as i know is our longest episode um but it was really fun and uh we talked out about some of the the factors that i suppose come into play in Jeremias's world because he obviously comes from like a hunting background um and he's so far up north and he's used to dealing with cold conditions and things like that um and i guess i kind of come in a little bit around the cinematography and kind of more of the the visual aspect of things which is something that i really love uh, to analyze and, and look at when i'm watching films um so it was really fun as i said and um I hope you guys enjoyed the interview and there's a little bit of information at the end if you can stick up by it on um, some future upcoming endeavors that um, I'm going to try and incorporate into the podcast. So um, things like Patreon um, and things like that. So I am I will go into more detail with it at the end. But yeah, essentially, I am setting up a Patreon account um, for the podcast, which will be launching um, as soon as possible. So you guys have been amazing to support the podcast up to this point um, and I really hope you continue to do so the podcast isn't going anywhere it will always be free to listen to um, but there's some added bonuses um, that are available very shortly if you do subscribe to our Patreon um, so I will leave you guys with the interview and um, hopefully you enjoy it and if you have any questions or feedback please feel free to get in contact with me either through the website on trialbyfire.net or through the Instagram um, so enjoy the episode and I will talk to you guys very soon. The fun thing about uh, looking at some bushcraft and outdoor films and looking at them, not just, I suppose, from the accuracy of the skills and things, but also just, I guess, just having a conversation about about the movies um, and kind of what we enjoyed about them and what we found was a bit weird. Um, did you did you enjoy the 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 lineup we had, Jeremias? I really did. The uh, I mean, neither of the movies that we uh, decided to watch were movies that I had seen recently, but movies that I enjoyed anyway. So it was a it was a good reason to sit down and watch them. And I actually sat down with Hannah and watched two of the three of them, and uh, okay. we were both sort of discussing the the the. the uh, movies as we saw them which was a very fun way of watching the movie instead of just sitting there and being quiet you know like you, you could have a discussion yeah. around it without being like the weird one that always have to talk during a movie now it was more like yep go for it yeah that's cool man because i i um i i only had myself and i was just taking notes as i was watching it uh well all three of them I have an aunt and uncle who I lived with uh, for a couple of months while our home was being built when I moved to Tipperary. And um, they had Sky, they had like Sky Digital, which was like a super new thing at the time. 
and you could um, rent, you could buy on the, you know, it was like on demand. You could hire a movie through your TV. This was insane to me. But it was so annoying watching anything with them because they'd be like, that would never happen. He couldn't do that. (laughs) Where did he get that? It's like, oh man, shut up and enjoy the movie. I would be be that, that way most likely if it wasn't for the fact that now the intention was to actually sort of look at the nitty-gritty details which is a lot of fun because it, it, you 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 watch the movie in a completely different you you watch it with a completely different set of eyes absolutely yeah for sure i mean all of all three movies that we're going to talk about um i have seen before many times um but I never really sat down and, and interrogated them before and was taking notes and stuff. And it was it was quite a fun process, I must admit. It was it was kind of a, a fun thing to do. You really helped you appreciate the, these films on a on a kind of a, another level. Oh, that's that's for sure. But it it's all it also makes me it made me feel a little bit like in, in in the end of each movie or when I thought a thought about like, oh I wonder how that would have been. It's like but man who like I, 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 every now and then I just felt like an armchair superhero, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's like when people like, watch like UFC or something, they're like, you should have knocked them out. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, it's like, I would, I, I would have done. How hard can it be to just move sure. your head a little bit? It's like, right, exactly. Or, or how hard can it be? Didn't you see that you had all of that over there? Exactly. It's, exactly. Like, it, it, it's it's a, it's a little bit infuriating to be that person as well, but it was also fun to be that person for this purpose. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's like that old cliche. It's like people that are usually really good at giving advice are really bad at taking their own advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that can probably be true. I don't know if I, yeah. I don't know if I want to know who uh, who I am in the, that. Uh, I don't know either. Probably, I'm probably the same. Yeah. But um, shall we? Shall we kick into the first film? Sure. What do you? What What do you think? Where? Which? Which should we? Should we go for first? Uh, I watched uh, Castaway. That was the first movie that I watched. All right, let's do Castaway. Was that the one? The first one that you watched of these three? That we yes, it, yeah, it was. Yes, yes. I, I hadn't actually watched it in years, but goddamn, what a great film! Yeah, what a I great agree. film. I, I don't I for me it was probably a shameful amount of years since I saw it last like it's same I saw it in the cinema actually oh really yeah yeah back in I don't know what the year 2000 I think it was I would have been about 11 I yeah. went to see it with my dad <laughs> oh that's cool no yeah. I, I can't remember when I saw it the first time at all but watching it now it 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 is a good movie like it is oh it, it's so it's good a, it's a good watch yeah just just so people are listening there will be major spoilers in this just in case so if you haven't seen any of these three movies um we will be talking about the films in full full digression you know (laughs) full plot all the way through so uh just major spoiler alerts if you're if you're concerned about that kind of thing but shall i do a little bit of a synopsis on it just for people who just to remind them yes go for it um yeah Cool. So the Castaway, directed by Robert uh, Zemeckis. Um, you probably know him from the director who did Back to the Future. He also did Forrest Gump uh, and he did Flight. Uh, this movie came out in the year 2000 and it follows the story of a man named Chuck 
who is a FedEx worker whose cargo plane goes down in the Pacific Ocean. Um, he becomes the only survivor of the crash and he's washed up on a deserted island where he has to survive for four years. But he eventually makes his way off the island on a raft that he builds and gets rescued by a ship. Um, I mean, for me, this was, I think, it's probably the ultimate like bushcraft survival scenario, isn't it? It's like, you know, the old uh, trope of, you know, what would you do if you were on a deserted island? You know, right. what, what movies would you have? Would you, what item would you carry? You know, and what if you had no items? What would you do? And uh, it, oh, exactly. And it's not like when you're sitting in a plane go, going over the Atlantic or wherever you're going, you're like, right. what, how, how <laughs> would I do this if it's crashed? Like, how could I survive? You yeah, know, like, exactly. It, 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 it's not like that thought has never occurred. You know, right. you, 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 everyone within this uh, sort of little, what is it called? genre of the outdoors that we're in probably has right. had some thought of a plane crash deserted island just like you said yeah exactly and I, well it goes for any scenario really it's kind of that old again it's like well what would you do if there was a freaking zombie apocalypse where would you go right. what would be your, do you, would you have a spot right i mean i think you'd be fine you've got your uh, you've got your home set i'd have to make a break for the border somewhere <laughs> yeah yeah exactly well, you have uh, the further the further south you go right now, there's just going to be more and more people. Yeah, true, true. I had um, when I lived in Ireland, I, I went, I stayed in this uh, old famine house. It was on Airbnb, Ooh. and it was an old famine house. Yeah, it was in the like very north of the country, just right on the ocean, and it was a converted off a farmhouse and. Man, you had to drive for miles to get out to it. And there was sheep everywhere. There was sheep in your garden. There was, you know, the place ran off solar power. Mm. And I always thought, if ever the shit hits the fan, this is where I'm going to make my, <laughs> I'm going to get back to this house. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> had a bathtub. And yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah. But, uh, no, but, it's but no, a, it's cool. Uh, yeah, it is a, it is a really uh, fun um, sort of frame framework to work within the uh, whole castaway scene yeah i love it i love it and i i love this the element of like you know the fedex boxes washing up on shore so it yeah. gives them like you know some vital pieces of equipment so like the ice skates for example they yeah. become like a huge part of his uh his kind of toolbox uh, or, or yeah. wilson who, who the volleyball who eventually becomes like his best friend you know <laughs> Exactly, and the uh, what's called VHS tapes and things like that. Like it's, yeah, using the VHS for cordage. It is a uh, it is a resourceful guy. You have to give it. You have to give that to him. Yeah, for sure. And I think there is an element, uh, kind of a theme within that. You know, like I think um, he he he's resourceful in the sense that. Um, uh, you, you know, like use, using this stuff that washes up, but, but you know, there's suggestions within the movie that he has experience uh, with sailing. Um, there's a mm. scene near the, near, near the beginning where it kind of pans across his, I think it's like a fireplace or something. And you can see he has all of these uh, yacht trophies or sailing trophies. So clearly this character has the ability to read maps, understand navigation, right. wind direction, um, and, and, you know, there's a scene in the movie where he's like trying to map how far off course he might have gone, uh -huh. where he's drawing, yeah. <laughs> drawing a map in charcoal 
and he's using the sun as a com- as a uh, a time scale for his months that he draws on on this uh, rock. So so he's clearly got a got a skill set there and is kind of somewhat resourceful and somewhat equipped for the for the uh, the scenario, which which I found was an interesting dynamic, and it's not really overplayed. You know, it's hard, it's easy to miss if you don't if you didn't see it. Yeah, that that's that's true. Like I I I saw the things that he did, but I never really connected the dots in in that way as as uh, you're explaining right now. And but I mean that that just gives it another depth in the movie, right? Like he he actually had something to bring to the table, if you will. So he wasn't he wasn't completely he was definitely way out of his comfort zone, but but uh, he had some something something in the back of his head. Yeah, but he he was resourceful, as you said. Like even like the ice skates, he uses those as like a mirror when he's trying yeah. to check his tooth. He uses it as an axe. You see him has he's like basically tied it to a stick at one point, and he's uh-huh. using the sharpened end of the ice skate as a as an axe. Um, I think he uses the shoelaces at one point for cordage. Yeah, like he's he's super resourceful. It's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, like, and and I'd... sorry. Yeah, go on. No, I was just gonna say that after for being stranded for four years, like if you have to get resourceful at some point, otherwise those yeah. four years probably would have been four days or four weeks or. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. I think, you know, he's a planner. He makes like, he makes things, uh, you know, tools. He makes a raft, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's he's making paintbrushes, clothes, fishing spears. I mean, these things would be essential for you not to go mad. I think, you know, um, there's, have you heard of um, John Hudson, who is a guy that we had on our podcast before? Um, he's got a book, uh, How to Survive, uh, not How to Survive, um, uh, yes, it is actually how to survive, but he's got a thing which is called the uh, survival triangle. Mm-hmm. And it basically comes down to working, planning and hoping. And he kind of says, like, you know, pared down to its simplest form. Um, you know, it's, he says, like, if I can do anything to change my situation, I'll begin to feel in control of it. If right. I feel like I'm in control, then I can sustain hope. With hope, I can plan. And with a plan, you know, then, you know, they they most directly affect my goals. So I think Tom Hanks character definitely plays, uh, kind of incorporates these things. He's 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 built, as you see, like later on in the film, like he's he's built a little home for himself. He's made paintbrushes. He's made, you know, yeah, like tools and a little, you know, he's he draws portraits of his of his wife, you know, yeah. on the, with charcoal. Yeah, I mean, and, it, uh, it's it's so impressive that that um he's managing to stay as sane as he's actually staying i guess and uh, i mean you know ev- everyone knows that if if something goes bad in the morning your whole day can be thrown off so that that survival triangle that you were just talking about of gaining control over the situation it's like your the, the coffee is too weak in the morning and then you have you have a shitty day like that that can't that can't happen in a survival situation. You sort of need to get your head straight as soon as possible so you can rise above the situation and gain control over yourself and the situation before it goes way out of hand. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, it's always it's that old saying, it's like, you know, did you have a bad day or did you have a bad like ten minutes? Yeah. And you allowed <laughs> that ten minutes then then to affect your mood for the rest of the day. You know, it's yeah. like 
if I can I do anything about it? No. If I can do it, if I can't, then, you know, let's let's look at plan B. And I think ultimately resourcefulness and being able to plan, you know, troubleshoot worst case scenario, best case scenario. You know, if you have plan A, B, C and D kind of down to a T. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this goes that this comes down to like, you know, military training and things. But if you literally have like plan A and B down to a T wherein you've drilled it, you you understand where everything is in your pockets, you know, if this goes wrong, I can go there. If that goes wrong, I can go here. You're more in control. You It gives it frees up your brain to allow you to make more intuitive decisions because the the planning side of it has been already established in your brain. It's it's built in. Exactly. Um, at least this is John. This is John Hudson's uh, kind of uh, idea of this. Um, it's fun that you say that. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No. He he gives an example of um of an air an air a pilot who got shot down um in the nineties, and you know this this air air force pilot he he knew where everything was in his pockets. He knew that he needed to do this and he needed to do that, and you know he had his radio out while he was before he had even hit the ground in his parachute because he knew he knew what was going on and he it gave him the space to to think you know and i think yeah and obviously we can't plan for things like a desert island but it's an interesting idea you know no of course not um but but yeah it's it's a super interesting idea it was uh interesting with what you said there with uh when training kicks in I can't really remember the details at all of uh, this podcast episode that I listened to. This is a Swedish podcast mm-hmm. that brings up different sort of uh, disasters and natural disasters and, and how okay. that might affect our future. Right. And uh, they were talking about on the latest episode, and like I don't remember any details per se, but the the moral of the story was sort of that when you are... Uh, mentally prepared you'll be able like the the body will resort to its uh, base skill or base knowledge of something okay and if that is absolutely zero then you'll sit there Mm -hmm. completely paralyzed in the motion of what's happening so i think the example was some sort of a a uh, plane crash where uh two Planes crashed, one crashed into to the other plane when they were about to take off. This happened quite okay. some time ago. And the plane that was about to take off and hit the other plane, more or less all of them died. But the ones that they were in the plane, they were on the runway still. The uh, uh, There was one couple that they used as an example there where the husband always looked for the emergency exit when he came into the airplane. And the wife was always just like, oh, what, whatever, you know, like it's just his thing. But when this thing happened and they were all just discombobulated, is that the right word to use maybe? Yeah. Uh, he knew, he just grabbed his wife's arm and, and got got them to the exit. Right. So he knew While exactly. She was there and she, he, knew, he knew where to go. And even such a small thing of like having some sort of a baseline to fall back on might make, you not completely freeze in whatever moment that you're thrown into totally and and i think um the little brain takes over where you can't think at all if you don't have anything to fall back on you're just going to be there no absolutely and and again 
to come back to John Hudson's book. I know we're kind of slightly off topic, but I think that's <laughs> but I think that's okay. You know, we've got plenty of time yeah, to well. kind of to kind of dig yeah. into these. Um he he basically speaks about that as well. Like I am gonna just quickly Google the name of the book because um I love the book and I've read it I've listened to it um on audiobook and I've also um read it in physical form. So I just want to make sure I'm getting the name of the book right. Right. This um, all t- ties back to mindset and and working in a survival situation. So it's definitely exactly reasonable. Exactly. Yeah. So let me double check here. Yeah. So so the thing is, he's got. I don't know if it's the same book or not, or if it was renamed for the uh, American audience. But the one that I read is called "How to Survive: Lessons for Everyday Life from the Extreme World," and then I think there's another one: "How to Survive Self Reliance in Extreme Circumstances." Forgive me if I'm wrong, John, if you're listening to this, but I think they're the same book, just renamed for an American audience in the second one. But exactly what you're saying, the the first, the book is basically, it first of all talks about extreme cases of survival. So you're talking about this guy who got crash landed. You're talking about people who were trying to escape enemies, blah, 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 blah. But then he will break it down into really normal everyday things like, like that, like, um, an air and like looking for your exits. He gives it the example of being in a hotel and always on the back of the door in a hotel, you'll see that there'll be a map of the, the floor you're on and it will show you where the emergency exits are in case of a fire. And I've actually started out of habit. Um, anytime I'm in a hotel, uh, I, I mean, just from traveling last year and stuff, always kind of stopping in just overnight in some cheap hotel or something. But just making sure you know where the emergency exit is um, on your floor in your hotel, I think, is could could save your life. And it's a very simple, easy thing to do. And if you if you build it into your um, your routine or your habit, if you are someone who's regularly checking into hotels, I think it's a really good thing to to understand or to, to pay attention to. So you're absolutely right. I think those little things can can make a huge difference in, in very extreme in, in circumstances where you don't think you'll ever be in, but you know, who, who the hell knows hotels go on fire all the time. You know? Yeah, exactly. And Hey, look, the, uh, castaway, the movie, he was just going to deliver some packages in a plane and then he crashed. Exactly. Exactly. And you know what I, you know what I loved about it? Um, there's a real nod to his, um, sort of resourcefulness at the beginning of the movie, you know, the, the scene where he's in, I think he's in Russia and one of the, one of the trucks has crashed or has broken down. So they have to move all the packages over to another, uh, uh-huh. shit, over to another boat or over to another truck. And he gets it delivered and he gets it done. And he's a super efficient person. And, and I think one of the sad things about the movie, um, this kind of element of time or, or time as a theme, I think within the movie is really strong. And I think it's, it's a very obvious one because at the beginning of the film, you see he's always checking his watch. He knows exactly when the next shipment is going out. He knows what time he needs to be here and there and how long it's going to take to load a truck or unload a truck. But then when he crashes on the island uh, or when he, is, when he washes up on the island, rather, he has nothing but time and he doesn't, it's just time has been stolen from essentially like four years of his life to the point where when he does finally return, everybody's moved on with their lives. His wife right. is, re- is remarried and had kids. You know, nobody really knows who he is. I just think that was a really sad kind of element of, of his character that this person who is so 
punctual and accurate and, and time, you know, uh, clearly, you know, very proficient with their time. Imagine being stuck somewhere where you just you just have to kill time all day, every day for like, what does he say? I think in the movie he says uh, 1500 days he's there, you know, I mean, that that's that's a crazy thing, because even even on like a five day camp, boredom can set in, you know, on the third day, fourth day, if you're not if you're not planning on moving on or packing down. You can get a bit boring, you know, and even hiking, hiking can get boring. You know, there is an element of boredom I played. And I think that is one of the things that I remember Ed Stafford saying about um, his time when he did the uh, those 60 days on the island, on a desert island or deserted island by himself. Um, That it was so hard to keep motivated and to find things to do every day to, you know, you need projects, you need things that you need to be doing because if you don't have those things it just you have no will to even get up in the in the morning and so i think for me anyway that that kind of struck a chord that time as an element or as a, as a character or a theme within the movie was was really was kind of almost the saddest part about it in my opinion that's a very interesting uh look on look on it and i definitely agree like the fact that course they had the funeral and he was wondering what they had in the casket and and all of those things and and it's just that just going back to uh, coming back to a world that has not stopped at all and then your whole world is stuck at that pace basically the the only thing that he has to relate to is that photo of his girlfriend or yeah and his volleyball partner and the volleyball comes in afterwards, but that that that's uh, that that has nothing to do with the time. But the time true, is true. fixed in the past. During these four years, it's fixed in the past, while everything is moving forward except him. Exactly. But I mean, it 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 it, it goes like and dealing with that, it goes into what you just mentioned—the volleyball, of course—and and all of these little things that he does, and then he finds. Wilson to talk to and all of these things and have a relationship with and get angry with and all of these yeah. things. So he, he finds still a way of, of dealing with that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So mind, mindset is key. Like mindset, mindset is, is uh, his mindset is impressive. Yeah, it is. And and again, like that mental game, um, again, coming back to Ed, like he told, he said to us um, when we spoke to him that after 60 days, or, you know, even after two, you know, half that time, he said the most difficult part about it was not having um, another person to bounce. He said he said he had to basically rediscover who he was because all mm. he had was his own self to reflect on. There was, you know, if you tell a joke and it's not funny, uh, he realized it's not a funny joke. And when we grow up as kids, you know, these are these are very fundamental things that we learn as adults or as 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 humans, really, it's like you do something and you get a negative response from the people around you. And you go, oh, that's I didn't like that feeling. I'm not going to do that again. Or you do something nice and you get a reward for it. But if all you have is yourself, then apparently I don't know. Of course, I would never understand that. But all you have is your own. There's no feedback loop. And so there's an element of PTSD there, I think, that that creeps into well ed said that he he felt like he suffered um ptsd after that uh, ordeal 
um, that he right. did obviously subject himself to. But I think in even within within Castaway, there's also elements of that kind of PTSD that are subtly nodded to. Like when he gets home, he's sleeping on the ground. He doesn't sleep yeah. in his bed. And that's a very like common thing with soldiers who return from Iraq and stuff that they they are people that have suffered from, you know, if they've been captured or if they've been subjected to long time, you know, forms of uncomfortability. They can't sleep in their bed. They have to sleep on the floor. They're so used to a hard ground. Um, and I just thought that was interesting. And, and then the character of Wilson, then obviously the, the volleyball, as funny as it is, that the fact that he's talking to this volleyball when he loses that character um, when it kind of falls off the raft that he built, mm-hmm. it's heartbreaking Like, because that was his yeah, literally his only, his only kind of friend really on that, on that, in those four years. And he's just, imagine like losing your best friend is the only person in the world that you have. And it was kind of, yeah, it's, it's interesting. That's something that can be so, well, it's it's kind of almost funny. At the beginning, it was funny when he was talking to the to the to the, to right. the volleyball. But then it really right. kind of that character really takes on something, and I think that's a really important element of his character to keep him somewhat sane. To have even in his own head, if he's creating whatever he's imagining, what Wilson is saying to him, I think as humans we need a feedback loop. We need interaction with people with with other beings in order to understand who we are as people ourselves. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It is. It is. Uh, it 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 it's a good showcase of um, of uh, oh, what was the word that I just had in my head of uh, ah, I lost the word completely. Now, of course, sorry. That's all right. <laughs> of, of, oh yeah, of, of finding a way to keep up morale. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Like just just having something to to express yourself towards instead of just sitting there dealing with yourself. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's another thing that he created that to, I guess, like in a, in a way of, of just getting mental load off onto something. Exactly. Exactly. But like a, a good mindset. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think of um, his fire, his fire plow when he, when he managed to finally get the fire cool. gun? <laughs> yeah, I thought it was quite cool. I thought it was, I thought it was quite uh, neat how uh, they had uh, the uh, you know him over there, and then he's just when 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 he um, was it when he uh, tried to do the handle fire when he yeah uh, a big thick huge thick stick and his blisters yeah. the fuck out of his hands and. I can't remember which way, which way he he made the fire, but where, where he his um, the bead of sweat falls yeah, down, dropped on the on the it. yeah yeah that happens that even in, when you bow drill him and that shit happens yeah and I, and I thought I thought that was like oh man like that was a nice touch to the whole movie in itself of of that little detail that seems in in another movie would probably be just like all right flies okay. way overhead. Yeah. Uh, above above the head of, of, of a lot of people but within that critical situation when that little detail thing happens that was quite a nice touch through movie but it's also cool that they that they added that being a uh, big part of, of what he was doing and the yeah. joy that he got afterwards yeah I mean I've seen that 
reaction from people that get their bow drills the first the first time you get a bow drill ember and you blow it into flame uh like a, a dude the the feel the the ecstatic feeling that people get i did it i created fire like they literally yeah. do it's so accurate um and i mean he like the fire plow that he does albeit it's a little bit fast uh he i think he gets it really quickly i think it would probably take a little bit longer than that but you know the whole thing about him saying like the wind got to it under so like you know he understands that the little crack crack in the wood allowed wind to pass up through it and he's using the coconut uh fibers and like it's it's accurate man it's it's i think they they nailed that they fully nailed that and the the joy of of fire man it's such a morale booster as you were saying yeah for sure i i really enjoyed that whole uh whole scene and that whole segment of the fires and and also the 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 rest of the crafting like the fire is is really cool because it's so relatable yeah, it is. Uh, no matter where you're in the world, like uh, deserted on a on a island, tropical island, or if you're in the Arctic, or if you're, I don't know, in a city or in a park or wherever, it's just like when you get that fire going, you you feel that sort of it. It's a comforting feeling that you can have no matter where in the world you are. So that's quite a cool thing. I agree. I mean, remember when we, you and I and Hannah we we took that trip up the hill and. You know, we sat, carved ourselves a little niche in the snow and lit a fire yeah. and, and made some tea. I mean, you can, a fire can make a random spot anywhere, whether that's in a woods or on a hill or on a, on a snowy field. It can make a random spot that you stop into like a set, a space for you to yeah. feel at home. A, a, comfort, a comfortable, like a, a fire is definitely a a huge comfort even though like i've never been of course in a in the same situation as, as this guy is in but i can definitely in one way relate to the feeling of joy and warmth and uh, happiness of having a fire going yeah for sure for sure did you notice um did you notice there was a swiss army knife on his car keys no, I did not. No, the I, the scene just before he gets on the plane when it's when it's about to crash, or you know the plane that he gets on that does it ultimately crash. Uh, he you know his he his he gets drives with his car to the airport with his girlfriend in the car, and then she takes over. You know she moves over to the driver's seat when he gets out, and he walks towards the plane, and he's like, "Oh shit, sorry, forgot to give you my keys." And he throws her the car keys, and there's a Swiss Army knife on the fucking car keys. Right. Like, oh man, if he only had that with him. Right. God, I don't know. I, so know. I little... completely missed that one. Yeah, yeah, and then that's even at really the end, then when... that's really neat. Yeah. Yeah, can but like the, you know the idea of a fixed blade or not fixed blade, but like a sharp tool. It's so hard to replicate in 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 nature, and you know, obviously he has his yeah. um his ice skate that he sharpens, but yeah, imagine he had a Swiss Army knife with him. But uh, yeah, and but then at the end it, when it, he it when would she, have been interesting to see how how that movie would have uh, panned out. Yeah, exactly right. Um, and but at the end when he when she gives him back his car, um, when he finally makes it home, she he she gives him the keys and he kind of looks at the at the he pulls out the. The, the 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 blade on the Swiss Army knife is like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Such a nice little thing. 
Oh man, yeah, exactly right. The smallest of things, like you said, it's the bead of sweat, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Shall well, we? Um, yeah, cool. yeah, no, fantastic movie. I, I like the uh, I like the water collection things that that they highlighted as well, where he's sort of gathering rainwater in leaves instead of drinking yes. from the ocean. Yes, and uh, the Drink. sort of primitive hunting and fishing that he started. Yeah, his his um his fish little, little his fish spear, yeah. 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 yeah, and 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 trying to get coconuts open, smacking yeah. them off things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, a, and then, yeah, it's a good movie. It's definitely a good movie. I loved it. I I loved it even yeah. more watching it this time around. I I did as well, and a lot because of uh, watching it with the intent of thinking like about these little details. Yeah, and, yeah, for sure. And I know, I know that I all of these movies that that we watch i know that i have overlooked all of these little details that we're now going to talk about right and it just is a different perspective and appreciation of these movies and also like the uh harshness of being out in nature if exactly. you're in a bad situation yeah no for sure and and i think uh for anybody that's listening if you haven't watched castaway in a while it's well worth a second watch i mean I wrote it, not, I didn't write it off, but I always just thought of it. I took it with a grain of salt. Um, it's, it's a Hollywood movie, you know, it's, it's a bit of fun. There's a volleyball, you know, but actually it's, there's a lot of, there's a serious amount of depth to the film that completely, uh, I didn't see the first time I watched it or the second time really, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Same thing for me. Shall we look at some, I have some little bullet point trivias about the film and then maybe we can move on to our next film. Sure, go for yeah. it. Cool. And um, so let's see what we got here. So a bit of trivia. I've got three different bullet points here. Um, the first one is um, actual lines of dialogue were written for Wilson, the volleyball, to help Tom Hanks have a more natural interaction with the inanimate object. So... Tom Hanks huh. was literally hearing uh, Wilson's lines in his head when he was responding to him and talking to him, which I think is really funny. It's re- it's a it's a fun little uh, nuance with him, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Uh, second one: uh, some of the crew members were left on an island for a few days to survive and learn some skills. Uh, they used some of the survival techniques in the movie for the character of Chuck. They were having trouble lighting a fire opening a coconut, talking to a volleyball and collecting packages washed up on the beach and catching fish. So it's kind of cool that they allowed some of the actual crew members to really experience what it would be like and a very tame version of it, I suppose. Uh, it was the screenwriter, actually, one of them. Okay, interesting. So he yeah, he spent several days alone <clears throat> uh, as well. Uh trying to sort of get into it a little bit, trying to fend for himself. Fantastic. That's very good. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Um, and finally, I have here, Tom Hanks said uh, one of the reasons he wanted to make the film uh, was to reinvent the stuck on a desert island concept. Uh, he felt that up to this point, most people's association with the idea was limited to either Robinson Crusoe or Gilligan's Island, which came out in 1964. Uh, and there was room for a new take on it. Uh, one rooted in the modern day. Um, and there was also room uh, in this film for a rueful line Hanks delivers about some things Gilligan never told us about surviving on an island. So 
Yeah. Mm. So I really, I really like those. Those. I mean, there was there's oh, that's there's cool. a shit ton of trivia about this film, but I thought those three were kind of the most uh, interesting ones for me. Anyway, anyway. So the uh, last question are, are in regards to this uh, movie, Castaway. Yes. What would you have done differently, or would you have done anything differently if you were in Ooh. his position, Shit. knowing sort of how the movie pans out and everything, and the resources that he has? Like, yeah, that's yeah. a really good question, dude. Fuck. Um, well, for one, I I would never keep my Swiss Army knife on my keys. <laughs> um, especially not on my car keys. I would always keep it separately. Um, oh man, that's a really tough question. What would I do differently? Let me have. A or think. would you have done differently? Like it's yeah, yeah. I I mean to be honest, I think the character himself um, has a serious ability to really. Um, well, I mean, he survived for four years, so I, mm-hmm. I guess he did everything pretty 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 good um god it's a good question i i guess yeah. just for myself i mean if you're talking about me now as a as a person who has somewhat of an outdoor experience i think i probably would have gotten fire quicker and i would have also had a um a, a signal fire um kind of pyre ready to be just ignited at any given point mm-hmm. So on the beach, I would have set up a massive, um, you know, anything that I could find that was in any way flammable, even the plastic, you know, a lot of things wash up on shore for them and plastic burns really hot and it burns really, you know, bright and stuff. Um, So I would have just made a huge, big um, signal fire on the beach, just ready to be lit at any point if I did see anything on the horizon or anything like that. Um, I also would have kept a huge SOS, um, signal on the beach. I know he does that in the movie, but you don't really see it again, but I would have made it, I would have made it bigger than he does. Um, and did he do it with sticks or walking the letters in the sand? I can't remember actually. Um, I can't remember either. I would have done it with with rocks and stones and and just, I mean, if you've got four years to do it, I would make it completely obvious from, from the sky. Um, so yeah, so a signal fire ready to go on the beach. If I saw something, just go up, strike a strike a spark to it, and it would just go up. You know, that's that's uh, that's funny. I would uh, I would have said the same. Like more 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 than anything, this character in this movie probably has a lot that I don't know if I do have because I've never been in that situation. But I would love to tap into that resourcefulness and uh, mental resilience of being stranded on an island and not knowing when you're going to come off of it. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that, that's, that's what I would like to have. But looking at it from like the uh, survival or bushcraft or the, uh, the eyes that we're looking at it with the uh, giant signal fire uh, concept is probably what I would have, start to look at sooner rather than later yeah yeah for sure and also the, it's interesting yeah and, and there was a lot of plastic stuff as well um mm-hmm. it would be much easier to get uh water um using plastic if you were able to for example plastic bottles um are very easy to catch condensation oh, on yeah. if, if you wrap yeah. them around trees and stuff like that um yeah. 
But I mean, he had a lot of resources wash up on the beach um, from the FedEx plane that went down, which I thought was a really nice, yeah. nice element to the film. Yeah. Hmm. wonder if they got, um, I uh, wonder how much money they sponsored that movie with. FedEx? Apparently they didn't at all. Yeah. They didn't at all. Oh, really? Yeah. They, they, when Tom Hanks approached them about it, they said, uh, yeah, if you work away, we're, we won't stop you basically. And apparently after the film, the, um, the amount of people that wanted to work for FedEx, like the employment, uh, kind of CVs and stuff like quadrupled after, after the movie. That's interesting. Yeah. I would have, um, if I, I would have almost seen it go the other way. Right, right, right. Like you're working for a big company, you crash and then four years, of course you get your job back and, or you deliver a package anyway, but still like yeah. it's risky business, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you know, I guess it is. I mean, I think when it came out in 2000, at least in Ireland, I mean, I don't think FedEx was a thing in Ireland at some, I didn't know what FedEx was. I don't think anybody really did. I think it brought, I think it actually elevated the company's status in the world. And when I see one, mm. still to this day, when I see the FedEx logo, I think about Castaway. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. So I think there was... The a handful of times I've actually seen a FedEx logo. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, you're, you're, you're out in the sticks. I, I would see FedEx trucks and stuff in Dublin, like, no, like, regular, on, on a daily basis, you know. But no planes, because they crash. No, no, no planes, no planes. Yeah. <laughs> shall we uh shall we move on to our next film yes let's do that all right what do you think um let's do um into the wild we'll save the last okay the last one the best for the last the, 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 the big one to the end rather yeah 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 fair enough fair enough so into the wild again yeah i um, remember this one when it came out oh yeah well not not like clear as day but i remember you know falling in love with the idea of it the uh the glorification of it i guess yeah i mean again spoiler alerts for everybody um if you haven't seen the movie um it's a true story it's about a young man chris mccandless who after graduating from college uh he gave all of his donate all of his money to i think it was oxfam twenty four thousand dollars um and then spent two years wandering around adventuring around north america um and then he finally made his way up to alaska uh, where he spent i think it was 115 113 days um in a um a bus that he found called he called it the magic bus uh before mm. eventually dying or succumbing presumably to malnutrition um, and was found uh, by walkers um, a couple of days after he had died. But I mean, you know, he he's kind of a polarizing character for a lot of people. Some people think, you know, he was an idiot that, you know, he was over, he was privileged and that, you know, he was an idiot for doing that without having any prior knowledge. Some people admire his ability to say fuck the system somewhat of a Henry Thoreau kind of character, modern Henry Thoreau of saying, you know what? Fuck modern society. I'm going to go be a hobo and live free and just wander the world and just experience life at its, in its freest, truest form. Um, 
I don't know. Where do you stand on on the on the scale of that, Yermius? I As I said, I uh, the, the first time I saw it, I fell in love with the idea of the uh, modern day Thoreau, I guess, of <coughs> being able to just say, like, let's go, you know, yeah. do whatever. It's not a money's not an object, you know, that whole yeah. blah, blah, yeah. And that's how I feel now with this movie and this kid. It's like blah, blah, it's right. just exactly the now I just feel the exact opposite of it being, you know, the uh, money he gave away, of course, was saved for him by his parents. It was not necessarily his money. Right, right, right. Uh, it was for his college. So he just gave that away. And then Hannah and I was watching it just last night. And, and we were talking a little bit about this of being in a position where you can do this and then have the fail safe of going back to your parent if you're or yeah. his now right. ideologically belief sort of started to crumble he was like all right i can always go back to my parents that's okay right 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 would would, would a person would have the would a person would uh, would a person do this kind of thing if they didn't have that fail safe of going back to their parents i don't think he cared man i i really don't think that he he felt like there was a fail safe i don't think he wanted not, a fail not, safe. Not, not, not even not, not even uh subconsciously because he always had he always had the security whether he liked it or not but he always had the security of everything if everything went absolutely haywire he could always go back i don't necessarily agree with you because he's constantly fighting the intuitions of or not intuitions but the 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 habits of his parents i mean there's a very famous scene or does a does a not very famous scene but there's a part at the beginning where his dad for example is trying to buy him a new car and he's saying well i you know i bought this he's got this shitty old datsun that's like you know because he had done many road trips before this um and he'd use that car to kind of travel around the country by himself um and when his dad tries to buy him a new car he's like why the hell would i need i don't need a new car like that thing is perfect you know stop trying to buy me things and he talks about in in a letter that he sent to his sister that he felt like he needed to refuse the car because he didn't want them to um feel like they could buy his love or buy his respect and that that had to be earned by action so i don't know dude i don't think that he really personally now i don't think that he really felt as though he had any connection to his parents or that you know they were somehow going to save him from anything um, he never wrote that to them. Not necessarily save him, but mm. uh, more the, um, I'm thinking more the, uh, what is it called? Um, I mean, he, 20-something-year-old will always argue with their parents over every single thing. And like this, you, you have You have this uh, everywhere. Like the place where I grew up and a lot of the people that I know and, and uh, grew up with, it's like this go not the modern day or at least scandinavian soul searching thing of going backpacking in in southeast asia and thinking like you're yeah. alexander supertramp kind of mindset <laughs> yeah. but still having that you know yeah fail yeah. safe of like all right you know i screwed up i can go home and that's sort of in the end of the movie he just wished that he could go home yeah yeah he, screwed well, I... up. He, had the, he had this like even if he's really in a dire situation it's like all right i wish i could do could do it then because he had the fail safe so my, my my question is still like 
would he have put himself in a situation like that if he didn't have the privilege of having that safety net beyond him, even if he didn't acknowledge it, you know? Like a person that is 20-year-old and homeless might not have done what he did just because of an ideal, ideological belief that he had. I, I, I can see your point. Um, I still personally don't think... I mean, obviously, he only he would know that answer, and if you, mm. if you post that, he would maybe have disagreed with you, but um, I don't know. I think... For all intents and purposes, the the man wanted to be free of everything. Like he, I mean, even even at near the end of the film, where that old man asks him, like, you know, where's your family? Like, where are your parents? He says, you know, I don't have a family anymore. I don't have I don't have parents anymore. Like, I I don't know if that was if he had really if he really said that or not. But I did, I never got that sense that he felt that even subconsciously that you know if shit hit the fan that he could go back to his parents. I don't think he ever wanted to do that. And I think at the end when he, he regrets, um, or not regrets, but he realizes that, you know, experiences need to be shared in order to, you know, appreciate them. I don't think he's necessarily. Yeah, exactly. I don't think that he's necessarily talking about his parents. I think he's talking about just the people. I mean, like for what I understand, I mean, the way, the way the book was written, was basically because like nobody really knows what happened to him apart from maybe his journal entries but from going from between one place to another you know nobody really knew where he was a lot of the um the way that we were able to or the writer was able to piece together um his kind of timeline was basically through the people that he encountered the the friends the people that he befriended and stayed with um and and for all intents and purposes, I can, from what I understand, he was a, like a really nice, likable, enthusiastic, like warm, kind person. And everybody seemed to like really like him wherever he went. So he seemed like a, a like a really nice person. Um, and I think that 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 interaction that you're talking about, that he realizes that he needs company and that he feels lonely, I think that's probably more to do with just getting back to civilization and getting back to people or towns rather than his parents. That's just my, my kind of take on it. Yeah. 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 Maybe, but I can totally understand what you're saying. It's an, it's an interesting uh, movie though. Like it's, uh, it's so, um, I, as I said, I, I went from absolutely falling in love with the, uh, idea and the sort of ideology presented of what he was doing and everything to then being like oh man this is such a naive person yeah selfish and all of the not caring about his parents or family or or anyone that cares about him is just doing his thing and doing his thing yeah yeah it's like when we watch this it's like the, the 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 uh sort of uh what's called arrogance towards his family and sister that he had a relation a good relationship with where it seemed right. like is sort of taking over the beautiful things that he's doing because he's just like man if any of my siblings would do that or any a person that i really loved or cared for would do that i, just I, I would just the face of the earth. yeah uh, I, yeah and, and you should be like not no no contact whatsoever. Just like, I don't want to be found kind of thing. Yeah. And I think in today's society, it would be much more difficult to do that. I think he was probably one of the last, oh, the last generations to be able to really get lost in the, in America. I mean, what was this? 1990, I believe it was. 
Yeah, 92 that, that he that he was found dead. Yeah, exactly. So, like, I mean, people say that he was inexperienced and that he was a fool for, for I mean, look, Alaska doesn't give a fuck about you. You know, when, no. when you step no. into Alaska, like, you're you're allowing yourself to fall into the food chain. You know, everything can kill you and you are, it doesn't give a shit about you, you know, that landscape. It's it's hard and it's wild and rugged. Um, and maybe he wasn't prepared for that. But I think, I mean, he survived a long time out there before he succumbed to malnutrition. I mean, he did pretty well for himself for for... To give credit where credit's due, I think he spent two years on the road, like just living and working. Um, And, you know, if he hadn't have fucked up, you know, whether that was through eating the wrong thing or, you know, just suggestions or maybe theories saying that he died from like rabbit starvation. Um, Which is, I'm sure, well, we've talked about on the podcast before, but are you are you familiar with rabbit starvation? Yeah. 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 Yeah, for maybe for people who don't know what that is, um, I don't remember what episode it was we talked about before, but basically the meat that you or the the eating rabbits, just rabbits, um, or small game for that matter, can actually uh, you can actually starve to death from eating rabbits, and I can't remember exactly why, but it's like there's not enough nutritional. Um, I don't know. Maybe you can explain it better, Yermius, because you're you're the hunter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But I have n- I've never been in a position of um, only having to eat small game, right. and and th- th- this is just how I remember it, and uh, it is an extremely broad statement of right. that it's not being enough fat; it's just pure protein. Right, exactly. So there's not enough protein that, in small game to sustain a human. So if you're only relying on the meat of rabbits, fat. then you're eventually just going to die of starvation or malnutrition, rather. But it wasn't it wasn't it that he um, uh, what is it called uh, mis mis uh, misidentified yeah oh, that's one of the suggestions uh, like yeah. the, the seeds of, of um, like wild, wild potato or rather wild pea yeah yeah I mean that's the way the movie depicts it um, and it's very possibly how it went down I don't know what it says in his journal or whatever but there is also um, a theory to suggest that he he may have also died possibly from so so it might have been a compounding effect of eating like the wrong um uh gathering like you know the wrong herbs or the wrong roots combined with him yeah. not being able to, like you know the whole scene with the moose um what did, what how did you feel yeah. about that that was a wild um chance to shoot a moose with a 22 seemed uh, yeah right I thought that was I mean in a survival situation I guess but um, still yeah no it it, it was he he of course earlier in the movie he uh, talked to the guy where he was working at the corn farm about how to butcher a moose and everything and yeah he was played by um, everything yeah yeah, sorry to interrupt you, but just for a bit of trivia, it's actually played by Zach Galifianakis, who I never realized was the guy who played that character, who is, um, do you know Zach? He's um, he's the guy, the crazy guy in, um, in uh, what's the movie with The Hangover? Oh, really? Yeah, so it's like a tiny oh. little role for him. And apparently his, that, that his character was completely improvised 
when he was talking yeah. to him about shooting a gun and all that. Like there was no script for him. So, but yeah. Anyway, so yeah. sorry. Continue. So you were saying about the guy telling them yeah. how to so, skip. how how to get it done, and then and of course the, it it's the first time he does it, and you know talking about kid and everything. The knife that he had was might might not have been the most ideal knife to bring into a situation if you want to survive in Alaska. Like a little buck 110 looking pocket knife kind of thing yeah a little folder uh, yeah exactly and then st- starting with so when you when you do harvest a big game animal like a moose or something like that you want to make sure that the meat gets cooled as soon as possible and then you see okay. him cutting the leg off first and leaving the fur on instead of gutting the animal and take out the whole sort of stomach package and everything. So you want to gut it, take out the whole stomach stomach package of, of intestines and uh, organs and everything without puncturing anything. Uh, because that, of course, if you leave it in the body with a closed cavity, that will just start to sort of expand because of the gas that's in 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 the body that can't you know move anywhere when 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 you're dead or the animal's dead. So you want to take that out. Uh, Skin the animal, because heat will attract flies and maggots and, and, and all of those things, as you saw in the movie. But he, for some reason, uh, or for some reason, it's the first time he does it, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give him that. And, and uh, there was no one there to tell him, and he didn't have YouTube, he didn't have a phone to call anyone either. So it's, I mean, yeah. it's a good job, even, even though everything right. went to spoil. <laughs> but it's... With a with a from, book from knife, <laughs> yeah, exactly. From another perspective, you want to make sure that the meat cools off as soon as possible. But I mean, he the a moose in 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 that uh, area wasn't necessarily not likely. So, from a how would I have done it perspective, why wouldn't he like make a DIY smoker before? He shot the moose, like planning ahead a little bit or making a drying rack or like getting a plan for what's going. Because it's like he shoots the moose, panics, builds a smoker that doesn't really work. Yeah. And then everything is spoiled. And that's probably ultimately what was the death of him, because if he had had a moose to feast on, he probably could have survived out the time that he I mean, he walks out to where he, I mean, he leaves the bus and tries to leave. But the lake or the river that he crossed when it was all frozen and when it was snow yeah. it was obviously a very small trickle but when he tried to get across it in the spring it was rapid and he couldn't pass it yeah. so he was forced to go back to the bus so he did want to leave at one point but he was forced to yeah. turn back and if he had have had that moose possibly he could have survived um, until you know maybe even the autumn when the when the uh, the lake was more passable or the river rather I wonder if you can, uh, so I, I just had to look it up to, so we can clear it out with the uh, rabbit starvation. So it's protein yeah. poisoning. It refers to a, uh, what's called, acute form of malnutrition uh, caused by a diet deficient in fat. So okay. where almost oh, all calories are yes. consumed in lean meat. So yes. it's, you're, you're, yeah, protein poisoning. Okay, so there's no, there's no, there's very little fat in rabbit meat, so, which is exactly. necessary for your butt. For your body to process protein, right? Uh, yeah. So yeah. It, when when you have when you have that, it like you can have symptoms of nausea, fatigue, uh, followed by diarrhea, and ultimately 
death. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I have but, to ask I mean, you a question. Moose, moose is, is a very lean meat as well, so I don't know how sure. all wild game, except bear, for example, or a well-fed well fed moose, a well-fed uh, uh, reindeer, caribou, and things like that could, of course, be fill, filled with fat. But the meat in itself is very, very lean, so the fat is super important to eat. Okay, that's really interesting. Um and may, this may be a silly question and, you know, forgive me, forgive my ignorance, but would keeping the the meat in the lake water or the river water have prevented it from spoiling while he was building um, a smoker? So if he did manage to, let's say, theoretically manage to skin the animal and break it down into its smaller parts, would it have been possible to keep the uh, the meat submerged in water while he built the smoker? Uh, theoretically, yes. I'm not going to say yes or no, because um, I'm not 100% sure, but the goal is to cool off the meat as soon as possible so that um, larvas and, and maggots and flies and, and whatnot doesn't get, uh, what's it called, attached to it. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Ther- ther- theoretically, yes, and probably in a survival situation if you didn't have another option that's something that would be a reasonable thing to do if you didn't have any other way of cooling the meat down while you do anything else. Anything is better than leaving it with the skin on. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, that's really interesting. I I never knew why we skinned the animal first before we cut it apart, but that's... I always assumed it was more efficient to do it that way rather than trying to skin each individual piece of meat. Um, That too. Like, it's a, a, a moose, for example. When we... When we uh, shoot a moose, we uh, we take it out. We take the uh, everything out, like the whole stomach yep. part out, yep. the all the intestines, everything in one package. Yep. So you just uh, pull the throat out, and uh, um, yeah, you basically lift the whole package out, okay. roll it out on its side, and then you can start to work on the skin. And once you've got into a certain point of the skin and you have the anim- the moose for example we hang it you can basically just grab the skin and pull it off yeah yeah so then it, it is a lot easier if you can do it in one big go instead of taking the quarters out or the hind legs out and then skinning it in yeah yeah I, in its own. my only experience from skinning an animal was well i have two experiences one was skinning a rabbit which i've done and another one was helping and observing while a friend of mine, Kieran Nugent, um, skinned a a deer in Kerry, and right. like that, like you're saying, we we used its uh, the tendons in its back legs to uh, put a piece of hazel through and hung it up, and then went from the mm-hmm. from the I guess from the butt down to um, to open it out and, and take out all that, and then wash. And then, then I think we skinned it when we got home. Um, but that was a super interesting um, experience for me to see the the process of that, and I don't think I don't think I would have the skill set at all if I did somehow take down a moose to figure out just how. I mean, the the pro the the prospect of doing that if I had never done it before it would be so overwhelming to me. I don't think I'd even try <laughs> and shoot shoot the moose because I would just be like, I have no way of knowing how to do this, like. I, I don't know. Maybe in a survival situation you would, but I, I don't know. 
It's it's interesting. It's interesting. I mean, it, it, he, he had uh, through the movie he had multiple uh, good opportunities, like from a survival perspective of like he had two caribous there, reindeers, uh, a mother and a calf. Yeah. But still, like that would have been good food. Yeah. From in 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 a, in a uh, survival situation or in the situation that he was in. Yeah. I think that probably speaks to his, um, I guess, his nature as a person because mm. he does want to be free and he does want to live this romantic Thoreau-esque sort of uh, life. But, I mean, he was ultimately inexperienced and probably had too much of a anthropomorphizing the idea of killing uh, both a mother and a calf. Mm. But... I guess in the in when he gets really hungry, I mean the moose is is there and he just he just goes for it. But he says in the movie that it's probably it's one of the biggest disasters of his entire yeah. life yeah. of killing that moose and then spoiling the meat. Which is which is definitely definitely how I would have how I would have felt as well because it is it is a big like it's a big game and it, even if we're when I'm out hunting moose we're hunting in a completely we're hunting with a completely different in incomplete different circumstances right like it's not a matter of starvation or not situation. exactly so it, yeah. but it's still like it's uh it's still not a it's it, it's still a big respectful animal that uh deserves yes. you know the respect, respect. It, yeah it, it it sort of the massiveness of the animal it's it's yeah. a big one it's a graceful animal for sure but yeah. I, I don't i, don't I think that uh, sorry no, no, go ahead. Um, just with the uh, the whole hunting aspect, like you see him walking in with a fishing net, but not with a fishing pole, and he's right by a river, and in the yeah. area that he's in, like he's up on, on, on the tundra, where there's only yeah, spruce trees, so there's not, there's no, there's not like in down, closer to the, like subarctic part of, of the boreal forest, where there's pine trees, and in pine trees you have like the inner bark that you can eat for, uh, vitamin and proper su- survival food but he's not fishing and he's right on a river that's a good point so that's a good point too. from from a survival or bushcraft perspective like there's a lot that in this movie that i can i'm doing quotation marks now like that i think that i could have done differently just given the uh, place that he's at yeah for sure and I mean just to come back to the the haunting aspect of it because I think um, there is a misconception with people that well maybe not our audience but I would say the general public there's a misconception and with hunters and it's been you know there's so many portrayals of hunters in movies they're always the bad guy you know, the hunter like in Jurassic Park or, or the, sorry, The Lost World or like in um, Jumanji even, you know, the hunter is always portrayed as this, the villain, I suppose. And the matter, the, the fact of the matter is anybody that I know that hunts either big game or, or small game, they have nothing but respect for the animals that they take down. I mean, even the, that deer that I was telling you about that Kieran took down, I mean, he put a piece of holly in its mouth and uh you know which is a kind of a, a sign of respect and, and i didn't realize and i thought maybe the, the deer had been eating it while i was shot and i went to take it out of his mouth he's like no no no, no, no. that's that's his last oh. meal you know we 
we get we we give them their last meal when when we take them and we thank you know them for providing food and stuff and obviously it's not necessary it's like what we were talking about in the last episode where we can always go and buy food in the store um but when I mean we had we had some of the that deer um kind of that night and man uh, seeing the food go from an animal to the table is is you'll never have more respect for um for life or for an animal than if you've experienced that from from start to finish and i think there is a lot to be said for that I, and, and, I mean i've seen people and i've seen people cry after taking an animal down you know it's a powerful it's a powerful thing to to do you know yeah for sure it is it's um yeah it doesn't get easier necessarily and the hunting like the hunting aspect is of course uh so much more than pulling the trigger like the pulling the trigger is is sort of the easy the, part. the absolute easiest part exactly it's everything before and then everything yeah. after the the exactly the, exactly the pulling the trigger is the easy part yeah shall we look at some uh let's bring this up a notch and shall we uh, look at some trivia and then uh, maybe move on to our final movie one more thing with this one that i thought yeah about um yeah hit me when he was in the magic bus you see him carrying like an old canvas type of a-frame tent they had right. with him why like of course he was in the bus but this is one of these things where it's like i probably would have done it differently sitting here being armchair rivalist right now i guess why didn't he use the a-frame tent to create another microclimate for himself inside the bus because yeah. it was not like it was spring or summer when he arrived there it was still full winter i mean he must True. have burned so much unnecessary firewood trying to heat up the bus without without any proper windows yeah yeah for and sure and try close up the windows properly with the brush or anything like that to create more of a windproof structure it's just there yeah i also would have covered up the windows personally and covered yeah. up as, ma- as yeah. many of the windows as i could uh, even with blankets or with whatever you could find just to stop yeah, exactly. heat, heat escaping um, because it's just a bus. Um, actually, I, I have a, f- a few little facts about the bus um, for people that maybe are wondering. Right. Um, so it actually had been there since the 60s um, and it was one of three buses that were brought in um, to to house the construction workers. So they were rebuilding the road Um because it was found to be valuable, I think it was minerals, maybe iron ore or something, um, up that way. So they, a contracting company was was given the contract to, or a construction company rather, was given the contract to rebuild the road so that they could access the mines and get trucks in and out. Um, so the buses were there actually to house the the workers. So that's why there was a stove in it and why there was kind of a bed and, and, and kitchen utensils and stuff. But two of them were removed after the contract went bust. Um, and they left the third one there. Um, so that's actually uh, where that bus came from. Um, and I think they have since removed the bus, that bus as well. I think that was only last year they removed the bus because many people were actually getting lost, trying to find it, making pilgrimages out to Chris McCandless's uh, death or, you know, his 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 bus. Um, so they ended up having to take it out of there altogether because too many people were getting lost trying to find it, uh, which I think probably is probably a good reason fucking ironic yeah you know 
Um, but yeah, it's a, no, it's, I mean, a, it's, a, it's a good, it's a good movie. It's a good story. It's sad. It's, but you know, it's, it's, it's sad. It is one of those things where, as I said, I fell in love with it, but now I'm more like annoyed right at, at his stupidity. Him as a character and, and a, 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 as a person, just because of what he sort of just left behind. And then what he, uh, got himself into without having any care for anyone else in the in the world. And then okay, one one more thing that I asked this yeah, to Hannah. And we had a we had we both uh, uh, said the exact same thing very fast. You know the guy that drives him out with the pickup truck there. Gives him the rubber boots. Asking, gives him the rubber boot, that person. Yeah. If you met a let's say that you were still up in Montreal where you were this winter and a uh, young kid came knocking on your door saying like could you drive me to the end of the road where there's nothing else but wilderness i have this and you, you're sort of sizing this person up would you have driven the kid out or not um i don't know what i would do personally depending it would obviously depend on the person who if it was that guy i don't know um mm. i think there's a mindset in alaska you know, they, there's, a, there's a famous saying with Alaskans. It's like, we're all here because we're not all there. I think there's mm-hmm. a certain level of madness that's uh, accepted if you live in Alaska that, you know, we're all a bit mad. And I think people kind of tend to stick to their own business up there. And, and you know, he probably felt like it wasn't his place to. And he did try and pers- dissuade him a, a bunch of times in the in the car yeah. Yeah. Um, based on the book, which I've been listening to. He, he, you know, he says, you know, there's, there's not a lot of moose where you're going or, you know, there's, there's not a lot to eat. You're going to be caught. And he, apparently he was just undeterred. So to answer your question, I don't know what I would do, but I know based on the book that the guy that did drive him out, tried to dissuade him all the way up there. And I think they drove for about two hours. Um, yeah. And in the whole time he tried to tell him, you know, I'd, are you sure you want to do this, dude? I don't think this is, this is a, is a good idea, but he had an answer for everything and he was just like super chuffed to just be getting on with his journey. And if I, if I encountered someone in that uh, mind frame, I would say, well, look, if he wants to do it, you know, who am I to stop him? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. We, we both, both of us said that we would not have dropped that person off. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's an interesting, not, not necessarily from, uh, the person's skill set or what whatnot that you could probably have it's just what what they were carrying and not necessarily based on what they were what they were carrying but this is based on watching the whole movie and that sort of being like the last thing before and yeah. that would be like a absolute hard no because i would not want to have have it on my conscience like having this doubt of like will this kid make it and then a couple months later, it's like, no, he's dead. And the, of, of course, you cannot necessarily think that everything is your fault. But at the same time, it's like, could have not just have driven him out and someone else could have driven him out. But it's not my burden to carry then. Well, I guess um, I guess the guy felt like he probably made a judgment call. He said, I, he'll probably be fine. You know, you'll probably get... Yeah. I, think, I think he said in the book that he probably... He says in the... Sorry. No, it's uh, in the say? book... In the book, I think, um, based on the interview with that guy, he says, um, you know, he figured that he would just give up after a week, got too cold or got too hungry and would just right. would just walk back to the to the road. 
Um, I guess he didn't, I guess, I mean, I guess Chris McCandless was a, a very, for all intents and purposes, a very unique person in his kind of mindset and, and determination. So, you know, you don't know who you're dealing with also, you know, at the same time. No, that's true. That's true. It is, um, yeah, driven by an uh, ideal, idealistic viewpoint of the world where your your way is the only right way. Your only your way is the only right way to look at the world is dangerous, no matter how you're doing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Exactly. Shall we? Um, shall we look at some trivia on the film, and then we move on to our final yeah. final movie? Yeah. For sure. So, so that guy that you're talking about, um, who gave him the rubber boots, his name was Jim Gallion, and it was actually the guy in the scene is actually him, the real guy. Right. Yeah. So Jim Gallion, the Alaskan who gave Chris the rubber boots in the opening scene, actually plays himself, uh, which I thought was really, really interesting. So it's funny that you touched yeah, on that at the cool. end there. Yeah. Um, the watch that. Uh, Emil uh, Hirsch which is Chris's character um, the, the watch that Emil Hirsch wears in the movie is actually Chris from Candlas's real watch it was given to him as a present uh, by the family um, so the connection between the character and the real Chris McCandless was was uh, I guess tied or bound by the watch um, which he tries to give away a bunch of times but you know the, the kind of the it's got like a, a metal like elastic on it, you know those old watches that everybody had in the nineties. Mm. So that was actually his real watch, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, when Sean Penn asked Eddie Vedder to do the soundtrack, he agreed on the spot before he knew anything about the film. For oh, me, wow. the, yeah, for me, the 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 soundtrack is one of the biggest elements of this film that I love. Big fan of Pearl Jam, big fan of Eddie Vedder, and. I mean, I listen to this, the soundtrack to this film all the time. It is, it is. It's a, the, the movie in itself, it's beautifully shot. It's beautiful scenery. The music is fantastic. It's, it's just an annoying kid. <laughs> yeah, right, right. If anybody want, if anybody's interested, I actually built a playlist for you guys, spring playlist, um, which you can find. I think I put a link to it on our Instagram account. Um, and I believe there's a song from the film. I think I put Hard Sun on there and that's a song by Eddie Vedder um, who, as I said, wrote all the fil- all the, the songs in the film. Um, according to the DVD doc commentary, uh, the moose that Christopher actually kills in the film was roadkill uh, that they found on the highway. So so he really did. I guess it wasn't a prop. It was a real, real moose oh. that they tried to pull apart. Huh. Cool. And then finally, which kind of ties us in nicely to our next film, um, which Sean Penn, I don't know if, yeah, we didn't, I don't know if we mentioned that, but he actually created the film. He was the producer. Sean Penn once envisioned Leonardo DiCaprio as playing Chris McCandless when he first became interested in making the film. All right. Which I could well imagine. Yeah. I think a young Leo in like, what year was that film made? Like, I think I have it written here somewhere. Right. So, I mean. That was a pretty young Leo. I think, I think he could have easily played that character. They're very similar. He's a very similar kind of uh, face, I guess, to to DiCaprio, a young DiCaprio. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, I mean so it would have been inter- I mean, it would have been interesting. It would have been super interesting. I mean, Emil Hirsch was a good uh, call for this one for the for this for this one. I think. Yeah, it was a good choice. But I would I would love to see yeah. an alternative reality where Leo played. Uh, 
play Chris. <laughs> yeah, that would have been quite interesting as well, especially uh, after his performance in the next movie. Yeah, exactly. Which brings us to our last film and probably, in my opinion, my favorite of the three. Um, what do you think? Mine as well. Yeah, for sure. It is The Revenant, which, uh, dude, I mean, it's hands down one of my favorite films of all time. I don't know how many times I've seen it. Um, I went to see it the day it came out in the cinema and I was oh, wow. so hung over. And you know, when you're hung over, you're kind of emotional. It's easy to upset you. Um, I actually cried watching the film and not because it was sad, but just the sheer scale and power of the scenes. And mm. I mean, I believe it was shot on the Ari 65, which is one of the, was actually one of the first films that was shot on the Ari 65. It's a 65 millimeter sensor. Um, okay. It, so most films uh, will be shot either in 18 millimeter or 35 millimeter. Most Hollywood movies. I know Tarantino mm-hmm. has used 70 mil film on things like, I think it was the Hateful Eight he shot in. Um, but the Ari 65 is a digital camera uh, shot in 65 mil. So the scenes are just unbelievable. I mean, there's, I love how, how he, I, I know I'm getting slowly kind of going down a rabbit hole already. I love I'm going to shut up now in a second, but there's just the sheer scale of it. We'll talk about it uh, down the line, I'm sure. Um, But I actually went to see it then again the next day because I felt um, I loved it so much. And I was like, was it as powerful as I thought it was or was it because I was hungover and emotional? Went to see it the same uh, again the next day and it was just as powerful. I fucking cried again. (laughs) It was just. Oh, wow unbelievably stunning film and i don't think it, it lives up to its um spectacle on the small screen but on the cinema screen my god i've never seen anything like it uh, no and I, I didn't see it in 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 the movies i can't we were talking about Hannah and i talking about when we saw it the first time but i can't really remember and i saw it then and then i saw it for this now what we're what we're doing and it is it is a it is a heavy movie but it's good like i really 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 like it and and that it goes everything from the scenery that is in the locations the uh the clothing the you know the whole package i think it's just it's it it, it's a good one so authentic it's a good one it feels it feels authentic yeah i mean the cinematography just to really again quick quickly touch on the kind of tactical cinema side of things uh the cinematographer was emmanuel uh lubetsky um, I know people might know him from uh, Children of Men, who, which was also an amazingly, um, you know, there's a couple of scenes in that film that are one shot takes, um, that is also an element of the Revenant that I loved. Um, he did Birdman, which again, the whole film feels like one continuous take, uh, and Gravity he did as well, um, and uh, he has this um, this style where he will let the camera roll longer than it feels comfortable um, and we'll kind of just let the scene kind of almost play out longer than we're used to there's I mean I don't just to reference one of the scenes within the Revenant which is arguably I think one of the the set pieces or one of the most amazingly uh, beautifully shot sets in the film which is near the beginning where they get raided by the Indians and what I really what what gave that in my opinion what gave that scene such a power 
Not to mention it was shot with just only using natural light, so there was no lights or anything used in the film. All shot on location with natural lights. But oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Barr, I That's think, really cool. Yeah, I think he used natu- uh, false lights in one place where they, there was like, you probably remember when the camera is panning up looking at these sparks coming off a of fire and there's a glow around the trees uh-huh. around it. I think that was done artificially, but everything else uh-huh. is shot with natural light. But there's a scene within that, or there's a part within that scene um, that is all continuously shot. And basically the way the camera works is it follows whoever killed the next person. So the, it follows like a Native American and then a Native American yeah. kills one of the Europeans or the European um, or American, whatever you want to call him, kills that that Native American. And then the camera switches to following the dead Native American to his, to this guy. And it just keeps doing this back and forth where whoever gets killed next, it follows the person that killed them. And it's just this real, it gives a really oh, and a horrific sense of like death. And like you're just, you're faced with like four horrible deaths within the space of, you know, 40 seconds or a minute or however long the camera kind of pans. And it's a really powerful way of working. And I mean, hats off to Emmanuel for that in and of itself, regardless of the, the bushcraft and outdoor stuff that we're going to talk about. But I really did want to kind of dive into that a little bit because I think it's one of the most uh, genius uh, elements of the film. I think it's just how beautifully it's shot and how smart and how it's really, you really feel like you're there in, in the moment with all the characters oh. at all times. You're running a long time. Yeah, it's a gru- it's a gruesome, brutal, gritty, horrible film for all intents and purposes. Like it's not a pleasant film to watch at all, ever. Um, but there's something so powerful about it that I've I've never I I just I can't really quantify it. I'm a fan. I'm a fan of the film. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. But Definitely. um yeah. So what what what's your what's your take on it? Give me give me some uh tidbits. Oh, where where to even begin? I mean, it's it it is a powerful movie. It is beautiful. Um, there's a lot of little uh, cool nuggets in it. Of uh, like in in uh, is it in the in the begin at at some point when they're running in water to make them harder to track, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, from Native, yes. from Native Americans. Like, that's a really cool little detail. So many little details. Uh, and, for example, that where they're sitting by campfires, campfires are always big. I think it is, isn't it Morris Kohansky that is talking about big campfires instead of small ones? It's less work. You don't need to, you know, cut the firewood super super small I, I, I might i might be i might be thinking uh, of uh, another person and not more so uh, especially in in winter and cold cold conditions like if you make a tiny fire there's a lot of work of just getting the firewood going compared to just grabbing brush and throwing it on if it's a big fire you get maximum heat out of, out of it they call it a white man's fire yeah that's right i've, I've heard that i've heard that one as well but it, i mean from from just being out and if if it's cold outside, like it, it makes sense. If, if you have a tiny little fire, you need to stay super close to it. it might not make sense for me not being um, spotted. Like it's of course more secretive or or tactical, I guess, to have a small fire. But from yeah. a heat standpoint, or if you want to dry your clothes, big fire so you get the rate maximum radiant heat. It makes sense. That's a Please really, in, 
no, that's a super interesting observation, man. I think, again, like, and and when I say white man fire, like that was literally what the natives used to call, because uh, because the natives would traditionally have built smaller fires, and whether that was due 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 to not being detected or what, but I think there's some sort of um, there's a kind of a more of a poetic side to it where they talk about a small fire brings people closer together, whereas a big fire. Mm. Uh, separates people i don't know um but uh but that's a really interesting observation man i really didn't pick up on that that's that's really true of the and then there's even like the french like they have these this massive bonfire when they're celebrating it and it ultimately ends to them being ambushed yeah Yeah, really quickly just for people who maybe haven't seen the movie and if you haven't then i'm gonna spoil everything but (laughs) i'm sorry but um basically it the the film is uh, I think it came out in 2002. Oh, no, sorry, it came out... Uh, what year did it... Oh, shit, I don't know what year it came out, but it was based on a novel uh, that was written in 2002. Uh, Michael Punke, or Punk. Um, and the story follows a frontiersman named Hugh Glass uh, in 1823. Um, so Glass is a fur trapper working for the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. Um, the plot really sort of begins to... Um, to to come up come to fruition when he suffers a horrific grizzly bear attack and is essentially left for dead um along the missouri river in present-day montana and he has to crawl back 320 kilometers to fort kiowa in south dakota and uh, hugh glass was actually a real person um although the the plot lines which i'm sure we will discuss uh between ourselves but um it's ba- he's based on a real person, and apparently he was born to Irish parents, um, which comes as no surprise to me because we are hardy folk. Um, but but that's essentially the the yeah the plot line. So essentially, he gets mauled by a bear and is left for dead, and has to crawl back to avenge his the death of his son, who was killed by one of the characters in the in in the movie, and uh, yeah, ultimately take revenge. Um, but yeah, sorry, sorry to cut you off there, Jeremy. So you were saying something about, uh, I think we were talking about fire. Yeah, I, w- I was just gonna say that, like, um, th- there's of course always a a huge debate on what's the most efficient tool to use to get your firewood in firewood size pieces. Right. Are you gonna use an axe? Or are you, you gonna use a saw? But, I mean, if you don't need to use anything and you just need to pick it up from the ground or break it off from the bottom of yes. trees, then yes. you've, you've saved so much energy on just putting that into it. And if it's a big fire, then it's like, all right, you can have even more of that radiant heat. 100%. So that's just and a it's something, thought of, thought of no, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right, dude. It's something that I've actually talked to Dave Canterbury about when he was on the podcast. We were discussing the use of axes and saws um for beginners and how the axe is it's it's quite a dangerous tool and and funny enough the bigger the axe the safer it is because the longer the handle Mm. the further away it is from your body and the less likely likely you are to injure yourself through glancing blows or missing the the wood and it hitting your leg or something but on dave canterbury's courses um, one of the deliverables is to get a fire, a boil, a water boiling. Um, I can't remember how long. I think it's two minutes or three minutes or something. You have to go from 
lighting the fire to get water boiling, like a full canteen of water boiling. And the best way that I found to do it, um, which I did, I, I'm pleased to say I did pass <laughs> pass the uh, the the first level of the Pathfinder basic course, was to essentially, like you said, just get a huge black bag full of um, smalls, the small stuff like branches, loose deadfall, you know, very small combustible things that will burn super fast and super hot. So I essentially built the fire around the uh the canteen itself rather than waiting to get the fire going and then putting it in i just put the put the got the spark off a off a piece of birch bark threw some um deadfall on there just some like really loose smalls um, and once i got a a bit of a flame put the put the uh the canteen right beside it and then just threw on a heap like an actual heap a black bag full of just smalls and man, you'll get their water boiling like that, you know. So, so you're absolutely right. It's 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 much more economical to just find small sticks and stuff uh, rather than trying to cut down big stuff. Yeah, and I, I mean, I like when I when I work the the work I do in summer along the rivers. I of course have I, I do have time to cut up firewood in the right length, but then at the like it just feels like a then. If I can't like lay it against a rock and and uh, sort of break it by the force of a kick, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to be bothered to pull out a little saw and cut it up into perfect thirty centimeter pieces. Like that's yeah. that, that just it will burn anyway. It yeah. doesn't matter if it's thirty or forty five centimeter pieces. Exactly, exactly. Or whatever. Or it, it can be even pieces that are not cut on each end. It could be broken, but they still burn. It'll still burn exactly. What's your yeah. What's your thoughts on carrying an axe? I love it. Like, I I use it. I use it daily. Like, you no, know, in 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 winter, of course, I use it for cutting up uh, snacks for dogs. Uh, I use it for clearing trails, clearing brush. Um, in summer, I use it for getting yeah, splitting firewood. If there's because when we do split firewood now, we make quite big pieces just because we have the stove inside the house that we pour more house with and it takes quite big pieces and then i we need to get some smaller pieces to get it going i use that but from in an outdoor like bushcraft perspective i i really like an axe like i've I've never i've I've used an axe so much more than i've ever used a saw in an outdoor setting so it's more natural for me to gravitate towards an axe rather than a saw that's super interesting because I would I would have said the opposite for myself. I find myself much more likely to go to the saw than to go to the axe. Um, and maybe that's the type of woodlands that I tend to camp in. I know that in one of the, the, the places that I do like to camp in Ireland is a beech forest. And mm. as we all know, birch burns. It's a really dense wood and it will you'll get a lot of bang for your buck if you're using some dry beach um and in that sense i do tend to carry the axe because i can split like a probably i don't know a six inch thick log i can split that in half and those two pieces will burn for a good a solid 40 minutes you know and give off a nice amount of heat um but by and large i find i use the saw more often actually Um, all right but i know that you know you're you're your lifestyle and your kind of your homestead 
uh, like you say, cutting up the frozen meat for the dogs and, and, you know, you do process a hell of a lot of wood for yourselves. I mean, the axe is probably a very valuable uh, thing for you guys. It is super valuable. Like I, I have a little Laplander that I bought a year ago now. And before that, I had another folding saw. And that was the first folding saw that I bought. And that was five years ago. Before that, I had never carried a saw whatsoever. And I, then I bought it just because it it seemed like everyone had it. So I wanted to know what it was about. Right, um, right, right. You got sucked broke in. It quite, into... Yeah, I broke it quite fast. And then the same year silky? I bought it. Yeah. It broke in. It was, it was minus, 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 minus 28 or something like that. And the blade snapped. Yeah, that was. It was, <laughs> mal, mal, uh, what's called blade or uh, poor, what's it called? Poor technique. Usage of me. Yeah, poor technique that uh, I have no idea because I've never tried it again. I still have the handle, but I don't have the blade. So then I went four years without, and then last year I bought the Laplander, and I don't really use it that much at all. Yeah, that's really interesting, man. I mean, there is, there is. A, I mean, we've completely gone off the revenant here, but I think that's, <laughs> I think that's okay. But just to talk, just to talk silkies, actually, because I think there's a huge uh debate i mean silky have done a really good job in my opinion of kind of uh establishing themselves and overtaken in my opinion taking over tobacco laplander which when i started bushcraft was the the go-to in terms of folding saws but silky seem to have taken taken over um tobacco in in that regard and i think more people are getting used to the idea of a pull saw um, which the the technique for using a pulse saw is completely different than than the silky or sorry than the than the backo in the sense that mm. there's not a lot of force required on the push if anything really and I think that's where most people snap their blades is on the push they're going equal strength push and pull whereas the only way you should be pushing forward is just to replace the blade back to its position in order to right. pull to, you know do a pull stroke and I I've been in many heated debates about silkies versus uh <laughs> versus um uh the laplander unfortunately that's a pretty sad life i lead but uh <laughs> you know, it's well it I, seems it seems to be a, a hot topic for sure yeah for sure i mean I, I don't i don't jump into them but you see them coming up every now and then and it's always i mean there's yeah each their own each their own exactly i mean personally i love both i think there's there's a place for both i right now use the silky the gone boy um, oh. i actually have it right here in front of me funny enough it is the uh it is the the curve the 240 curve um and you know the thing i love about silkies they're made in japan they're designed for arborists they're designed for tree prunings and stuff so it is it is a professional tool and I think if you learn to use it properly, I think it can be a, a really cool tool to use. But yeah, maybe in minus 28, it, I'm sure the steel becomes quite brittle. And then you're also dealing with frozen wood, which is something that people don't consider. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like I, I can't I can't say neither here or there because I'm, I'm not, as I said, that well versed in um, using a saw. So my opinion is... is uh, an opinion more than based in anything else than that. I got you. I got you. Shall we move? Can we, but, sh shall we get back to yeah. the Revenant? Yeah, let's get back to the yeah, Revenant. Exactly. Big <laughs> fire, 
good thing to warm clothes or to dry clothes. It takes a takes doesn't take that much effort compared to using it a saw and axe. Right. That's sort of where we left off from or yeah. went yeah. on it. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, I, I completely forgot where we were. So that's that helps. Um, what were the your most favorite elements of it in terms of um the realism of so we we touched lightly there on the kind of the authenticity of the the costume and the the uh the kind of i suppose the mannerisms of these fur trappers what 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 for you stuck out as made it feel authentic i think i think the um what what made it feel authentic was and this might sound quite quite silly but the um the scenery that they were in, the uh, what's called terrain and, and landscape they were in, for some reason that felt authentic because I could relate to it, I could understand it a little bit more than anything else. So all of the all of the little things that they did, I could see it be a little bit more like, all right, that's reasonable, all right, that's reasonable. But then, of course, there's a lot of other things that weren't necessarily reasonable in my head, at least. And if that's true or not, that that I'm not gonna. I'm not going to say, say neither yay or nay on that, but I think the uh, the scenery made it that that's what that's what made it really authentic. Yeah, yeah. I I think it was shot between Alaska and or no, sorry, it was shot uh, on in North America, so it was shot on location, and I think they actually had to do some scenes in I want to say like. Venezuela or somewhere like it was somewhere completely like you wouldn't expect um let me find I have some trivia here um so it was shot in Canada and and Argentina that's what southern Argentina um and the reason that they had to move to Argentina yeah sorry yeah 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 and I was just gonna say the reason they had to move to Argentina was because the um the snow was actually melting on location in Canada. So maybe that touches on, you were mentioning earlier yeah. to me that you were confused as to what uh, season it was. Yeah, it was uh, super because frustrating. It's like, <laughs> yeah, because there's snow and then there's no snow. But apparently, yeah, the snow was actually melting in Canada. So they had to move the pro- whole production to um, to southern Ar- Argentina uh, where there was more wintry conditions. And it actually led yeah, to... Sense, maybe. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it actually led to um, Leonardo DiCaprio creating that film, that environmental film, Before the Flood, um, oh. which is all, all about the environmental issues and, and the melting of our uh, natural environment and stuff. Because at that time of the year, for all intents and purposes, where they were shooting should have been completely mm. snowed in. But it was impossible because... I guess because of global warming, you know, so yeah. he it kind of brought it to the fore for him, and it kind of inspired um, him to to make that film uh, before the flood. That's interesting, yeah. But I mean, uh, it, it's it's a good thing that you mentioned that I that I uh, talked about a little bit before we hit record. That I had a hard time understanding what time of year it was, uh, but it makes sense now that if they had to move location because you have one. There's a couple of scenes that I'm thinking about more than any other scenes is where uh, Bridger and Fitz, Fitzgerald have left him. They are on that sort of cliff edge and are having a little bit of an argument. And Bridger is, is threatening to shoot him. And then you see that like that hole, that's an exposed cliff. 
And if that would be wind, it would not be an exposed cliff. It would have been snow covered. Okay. okay. And then you I see, never copped that. Uh, and then you see, uh, what is it called? Um, uh, Hugh Glass, Leo, then starting to mm-hmm. crawl out of his little grave that he was in. And it's not that much snow, but it, that, in my head, that makes sense because it, it looks like it's quite a tight forest with like spruce trees or, or something like that. So a lot of uh, cover so for the snow not to hit the ground. But then when he gets up to that cliff where they were, it's still not snow. Yeah. <laughs> and it's an open cliff. And then the next shot you see Bridger and Fitzgerald walking and in, in, in like along a lake or a clearing or something, we have the mountains in the background. And then there's a tree, a deadfall laying where it looks like it's a foot, like 30, 35, 40 centimeters of snow on top of that tree. Okay, okay. It's like, did it jump, like the, the, it's a clearing on a cliff. And that's just me overthinking and not understanding. It's like, how does that, in a, it's in the same area, can't be that far apart. There's not snow on an open cliff where you see in the background, there's not necessarily much snow in the terrain at all. And then the next shot, you see them two walking where there's a lot of snow all of a sudden. That's interesting. But in the I, same way. Yeah. I mean, it was shot on location, so... The very reason yeah. why that's the case is probably just due, due to the fact that the snow had been melting, like you know, around the around the river. Um, I don't know when could could be or or, or the that that they had to move to Argentina and then they just used one of those shots where it was a lot of snow where they were walking. Make yeah. make sense? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. No, that's it was such a it was such a clear difference in between the amount of snow. That is such an interesting and, observation, yeah. and I'd never caught that at all. But but it makes perfect sense when you actually hear why they had to had to move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's mm-hmm. that's super interesting. Let's move on to um, I'd love to move on to the bear attack because I think that's probably yeah. one of the most pivotal scenes in the film. Um, it's probably the closest thing we'll ever get to witnessing a grizzly bear attack. I mean, it, it, in the cinema, it was my god. I've never said anything like it, it was horrific. I remember. I remember this silence in the cinema when, when that scene, and it's so long as well, um, and it's mm. one shot, and it's so perfectly captured. Um, and, and and when it eventually does, like, um, stab the, you know, and kill the bear, and it falls, rolls down the hill and lands on top of him, I remember everybody in the audience just being like, oh, God. <laughs> it was just like this exhale of, like, oh, Jesus. Like... Uh, one of in my opinion one of the most amazingly cinema cinematographed whatever the word is cinematographed cinematographed uh, scenes in cinematic history it was so painfully accurate and long and drawn out and and i mean we always i always you know uh, like like any normal outdoors person it's like what would you do if you came across a bear or do you think you'd be able to i'd stab it in the eye or i'd do this or that it's like and you see the size of that fucking bear and just the way that it like impresses itself on that character. You're just uh, a belief in the wind. You just don't stand a chance. Yeah. Nope. Not at all. Well, how did you feel? Not what, at all. what did you think about that scene in terms of like its accuracy or it's, uh, you know, would, would you have done anything differently? Oh man, that's a, that's a good question. And I don't, I don't know if I would like you, of course you read and, you hear people say about how you should do things and all of those things. But it's just like what we talked about in Castaway, like unless you 
actively think about how you're going to do it and create sort of a plan in your head. Even then, if you do that, maybe your body, when you get into the shock of being attacked by a bear, you might, the body might just resort to being completely still and not do anything, even if you're well-trained or well, uh, what's called, understanding of what you need to do. So, I mean, from, from, uh, I, I mean, there's, there's so many armchair things that you can say about sure. this whole thing <laughs> yeah. of, yeah. Should he have turned around or sh- why didn't he just curl up into a ball and cover his neck with his hand, like put him behind his neck and, you know, all of these things that you should do. But then again, like you're attacked by a bear. It's like trying to, you know, yourself, like if you're or me, at least if, if someone asked me about fifth grade math, when I'm not ready for it, I'm not going to be able to answer yeah, any questions. Yeah, it's, it's like, what's five plus five? Yeah, it's 32. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's it, yeah. How, how, how am I, how am I going to know how, how I'm going to fend for, yeah. for a bear? No, it's true. I mean, he, I mean, I even remember Steve Rinella on the Joe Rogan podcast. You mentioned Steve Rinella earlier. Um, yeah. uh, he, he actually got attacked by a bear um, on a hunting trip with yeah. a bunch of his friends. And, Apparently the bear just came out of nowhere. Like just, he, he said he remembered saying something like, you know, this is a good beer. So he says, that's all I remember. And then out of nowhere, this bear came and I think he had a pistol and I think his gun was like his rifle, main rifle was like lying on the, like up against a tree. And he said that everything that he had ever trained for, because someone like Steve Rinella, for people who don't know, he's, he does the uh, Meat Eater podcast, good friend of Joe Rogan's. Um, he does bow hunting in like in America and like some of the wildest places. He's like the fittest man you'll ever see. Um, bow hunts. Um, I think it's goats, is it like mountain goats? Um, he will literally train for six months just for one hunting trip. Um, someone like that who is caught unprepared on a bear attack. I mean, how in the hell is the average hiker ever going to know what the hell to do in that sort of situation? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And even even if you know, and it is such a big, scary thing coming straight at you. Yeah. You know? Oh my god. Yeah, you know, and 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 for people, you know, I mean, grizzly bear attacks—they are mostly they're they're rare. You know, it's a rare occasion. Normally, in a bear encounter, in in a bear encounter, it's due to the fact that you've maybe become in between their young. Um, and they feel like you're a threat, which is what happens to um, to Glass's character in The Revenant. Yeah. Uh, but m- more often than not, um, a grizzly bear is not going to attack you. But I guess I, I have some notes here on how you're supposed to go about a grizzly bear attack. Um, so go I might share it. that with people. So first and foremost, they say and um, that you should carry bear spray. Um Everybody should be carrying bear spray and it's actually probably more effective than shooting at the animal, which more often than not just pisses it off and makes it angry. Um, but bear spray will, for the most part, stop a bear dead in its tracks and will just make you leave you alone. But if that doesn't work, then you shouldn't run. Uh, when you run, the bear thinks that you're prey and will continue chasing you. Uh, you'll never outrun a bear that can run up to 30 kilometers an hour. Um, so, you know, that's not an option. Um, so what you're supposed to do is 
drop to the ground in a fetal position and cover your back, the back of your neck with your hands. So like you're saying, um, his character doesn't do that. He, he falls on his front and, and then eventually managed to get on his back and, and, and all that. But if you don't have a bear, if you don't have bear spray um, and the bear continues to charge, even after the spray, uh, your next uh, your next defense is to hit the ground immediately and curl up into a fetal position. And then finally just play dead. So grizzlies will stop attacking you when they feel that you're no longer a threat. If they think you're dead, um, they won't think you're threatening. Uh, once the bear is done tossing you around, uh, continue to play dead because they're known to wait around to see if the victim will get back up. Um, and, and, and just to be aware that that is a grizzly bear. That's not a brown bear. You know, there's a, there's a distinctive difference. They say, um, what does something about, uh, it's like if the, if the bear is brown, lie down. If the bear is black, fight back. So, uh, sorry, did I say a brown bear? I meant a black bear. Um, a black bear will more often than not back down if you scream and shout and make yourself look bigger. But a grizzly bear um, will not do that. It will see you as a threat and will fight you. Um, so, yeah, it's worth knowing the difference between the two. I think the main difference, as far as I'm wrong, if you could correct me on this, but it's the hump on their back, Hermes. Between browns and grizzlies? Between black bears and grizzly bears. Oh, I, I actually don't know too much about uh, black bears, but it, I, gri- grizzlies mm-hmm. and brown bears, I think they're the same species. Uh, it's just a re- re- region, regional difference. Yeah, exactly. I think, do you, you call them brown bears? In, yeah, it's brown in, bears. But aren't, like, I'm, I'm not going to say too much about black bears because that's just going to be me guessing away on right, things I've right. heard or, or half read. So... But they're smaller and black fur instead of brown. <laughs> yeah, and I think they have a, a br- grizzly bears or brown bears, as you call them. Um, they've got a big hump on their back, and a, mm. apparently that's a muscle used for digging roots and for slashing prey. And so, so like you can just you can define them by this massive big uh, hump on their back, and they're also much taller when they stand up, and they've got bigger claws and stuff. Um, but I think. What are the bears that you have around your place? Are they brown bears? Brown bears, yeah. Yeah, so they're very close. A lot of them. That terrifies me. I I mean, I've I've never given a second thought about a bear when I'm I'm out. No. Ever. You've seen them though, right? No, not in the wild. No? Wow. Never. That's that's amazing. not that many people that see bears in the wild here. They are, they still have a fair bit of um, areas where they can roam in and reside in that are not where where people are not walking around in. They still and, and they of course bear to ninety nine percent will always know where you are before you know where they are. So, and they it might be you have you have stories of people being seeing like walking up on a bear track, following the bear track. And then realizing the bear that's been standing behind them, and then walked away. Oh my so gosh! The bears start <laughs> circling, check them out, and then they'd be like, "All right, this is just so this is not worth my time," and then walked away. Oh god! I remember um, there's a there's a big hill up behind my house where I lived in the north, in Morchell, and uh, I was up there all the time. And I know that in the time that I was living there, they were pretty much asleep. Um, 
but I asked Brita, who was one of the ladies that um, worked with uh, Frederick, um, I asked her if there was any bears around the area and she said, yeah, 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 there's one, there's, there's like a female that lives up on that hill there behind that hill. And I had been up on that hill like a couple of times, um, obviously never saw anything or whatever, but the thought, the very thought of a female grizzly like living in and around that area afterwards, I was like, I am never going back up there. (laughs) (laughs) They honestly terrify me, man. Polar bears, I, in my opinion, are the scariest animals alive. Yeah. Yeah. Like whatever about your sharks. I mean, sharks are sick, are scary, of course, and you never want to be in, in the, what? Okay. Here's a question for you. And we're slightly getting off topic here. Um, and it's something that I've had an argument with my girlfriend a bunch of times because she's terrified of deep water and sharks and stuff. Would you rather be in water knowing that there was sharks or be on the Arctic North, uh, North Pole with a polar bear in your presence? Uh... <laughs> Good question. I think I would be uh, in the Arctic with a polar bear. Yeah. And yeah. Really? Well, it's because your humans are not supposed to breathe underwater. We've created no. that technology where we, yes. we are we, yes. we are physically capable to walk in the regions where polar bears are. So it's I feel I feel like it, it would be if, if I would encounter that it would be more uh, fair game for the polar bear. But right. if, if if it is a a white shark, like a great white shark, for example, and I'm in in my diving equipment and things like that, I'm 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 not even supposed to be there. It's just something that we create. Yeah. So if I get eaten, that's just like all right. I was just a, I wasn't supposed to be there, kind of thing. Yeah, I would rather have the I guess the honesty of uh, where we as humans are supposed to be, rather than being underwater breather even though i work with it, but it still it still feels um like we're not supposed to be in the water in that way that's totally true and it's fair enough my only my only tripe with that is that or not sure that's the, the wrong word to use but my only thing about that is if you're on a field with a polar bear you're almost guaranteed to die whereas if there's a shark in the water the chances of it like taking a chunk out of you are relatively low statistically so as as freaky as it would be to be in a place in a terrain and in you know underwater where you're not supposed to be um but the likelihood of you dying a horrific death are actually not as high as if a polar bear catches your scent like you are 100 percent gonna die if a polar bear is in your presence <laughs> like but i mean i mean there's uh there's uh, arguments against that, I guess. I mean, could, if, if we use a great white, for example, it's right. You can't do anything. You can't even like if a bear comes towards you, you could just stand up and scream, and you could try and do something, even if it wouldn't right. matter. But when you're underwater with uh, diving equipment, like if you open your mouth and try and yell something, it's like no one is even gonna hear anything. No, that's you, you true. Just, you just have to accept the fate. You can't even fight back. But on land. Even with a polar bear, that you wouldn't necessarily win a fight, but you could go out without having to just accept. And even if like a great white would just take a chunk off you, and 
you might not die of that, but you would drown, maybe. And you'll bleed to death. That yeah, would, you'll drown. Would, yeah, for sure. Terrible thing. I would rather be hopefully swiftly killed by a polar bear than half killed by a great white. <laughs> That's a really good perspective on it. I, I, I just, yeah, I've, I've thought about it a bunch. Of, I've asked a bunch of people, and they always go for the shark. They say that's a scarier thing. I just something about bears, and uh, I don't know what it is, but especially polar bears. I mean, have you seen those homes in in Svalbard where they basically they have spikes on their homes because because yeah. the polar bears are known to come up and try and shake the house and rock and yeah. knock it down. It's like what the hell, man. Everybody in their everybody in their home in Svalbard leaves their door open just in case somebody needs to run into a home for fear of a of a yeah. of a polar bear attack. But um, I mean, uh, going from uh, how about this for a transition? Going go from it. bears yeah. to great whites to then uh, water. Yes, I'm talking about the river. I thought it was a really cool detail that when he floated down the river, he went feet first. Right. Yes. Like that was an, like an actual thing of how you're supposed to supposed to do it. Yes. So it's just like, yeah, nice detail. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. Actually, I, I think there was a lot of there was a lot of elements within the Revenant that were were like, for, I mean, it's it just felt super researched. It felt super accurate. Um, the costumes, even the way that they carried the pelts that they used, the, mm-hmm. the head brace, which is very much, yeah. um, I mean, to this day, you can still get that kind of that method of carry. It's, it's a very uh, accurate. Everything was was at least in my uneducated brain or inexperience felt pretty pretty authentic. You know, like down to you it know, the, yeah, like the fur trade. You know, as in, I mean, the Rocky Mountain Fur Trade Company, like that, that really did exist. Um, you know, I think the bear attack was super accurate. I mean, everything about the film just felt, felt so real. Even like what, what about, um, that scene where he, uh, falls off the cliff and he cuts his horse open and takes the organs out to like get inside it. It was like a, a nod to Star Wars almost. (laughs) Yeah. And and didn't, didn't, uh, Bear Grylls do kind of similar thing in an episode? Yeah, probably. I want to remember that he did that. Yeah. I mean, there's so many cool things in 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 the whole movie. That that one, for example, of like it makes sense to, because a, a a body, even if it's cold out, it takes quite a long time for a big mammal to completely be frozen stiff. Yeah, because you have, you have there's a lot of muscles that need to get yeah lose all of its heat. It's a lot of mass that needs to lose lose its heat. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a it's a good it's a good little detail, I think. And same thing with uh, like uh, using his metal fork and flint to get a yes. fire going. I wanted to talk to you about that, that as, well. Really cool as well. Yeah, and apparently that would have been um, something that people would have done. So people, and you know, it's it's a historical accuracy in the sense that everybody carried their own cutlery back in the day, down mm. to medieval times. You had a spoon with you, you know. You, medieval England you carried a wooden spoon with you you weren't going to someone's house expecting them to give you cutlery you had your own cutlery with you all at all times and it was the um, same thing with knives as well here in, in Scandinavia I learned fairly recently like everyone has to, had their own knife because you were not one thing was that you were not supplied a knife when if you want to go and eat at some someone's place so your knife had to do everything everything from processing game to I guess 
fending for yourself to uh, sitting down at a neighbor's dinner. Uh-huh. That's really cool. I did not know that. Um, but I like his fork. I like the way it's a two-pronged fork as well, which is, again, is accurate yeah. and not the four-pronged or three-pronged that we're used to today. Um, clearly forged. Cool. Uh, it, it is. There, there's a lot of cool little little details. Like when the, I noticed something with, they're not necessarily using hats. They're using these wool hoods. I don't know if that was a sign yes. of computer yeah, yeah. pelts. Um, if I know my history correct, there, a big reason why beavers almost went extinct was because they were, of course, sold as fur for fancy people in Europe to wear them as tall hats, basically. That's, of course, mm-hmm. probably putting it a little bit too easy. So wonder if it was that trappers that didn't necessarily have the finance to get themselves these nice fancy hats that were out uh, getting the fur for for people that could afford it. They were using, mostly right. using wool hoods rather than hats. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and there's a couple of things I want to talk about. One is is the fur, and the other is um, is the, um, like, it's interesting you mentioned there the extinction of beavers because the buffalo also in that part of the world mm. at that time were driven to extinction before the Europeans settled in America and ultimately, like, moved Native Americans off their land and, and decimated them. One of the strategies that they used, um, I guess some of it was consequential and another, and another elements was intentional, was that they completely decimated the buffalo population in Western and North, North America because for the Native people, the buffalo were um, their lifeblood. They followed the herds much like the, 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 um, the nomadic people of, of North and Northern Europe. They followed the buffalo herds across the plains and they were very much their source of fur and food and, and all sorts trading and such. Um, but when the Americans uh, tried to, or well, I guess the, the British and the, and, and the likes, tried to wipe out the, um, the native people, one of the strategies was to just decimate the buffalo population so that it cut off oh. their lifeblood and their, their resources and ultimately led to them surrendering and being forced onto um, reserves. And I think the film does touch on that a little bit when you see there's a scene where he's standing in front of a pile, like a massive pyramid of buffalo skulls, which apparently did happen. There is a very famous photograph of some men standing in front of what looks like a 20-meter-tall pyramid of buffalo heads. And that was very much the case in at the time you would have people shooting buffalo from outside train windows as they drove past um and it's very unfortunate but today's like there was literally millions of buffalo on the plains of north america at the time and i think they wiped down to like i don't know something like five or six hundred by the time they realized uh, that they needed to change yeah that's wild it's insane and it does touch yeah. a little bit like the the i guess for want of a better word the rape of the natural world for the the resources that the land gave and the decimation of native people and 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 the the natives are, are painted in a really beautiful way in the film i think at the beginning you really feel the terror 
that they would have instilled in the 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 white folk for want of a better word mm. you really feel the terror that would have occurred from a native attack but at the same time you know they don't belong there they they are in their world they're in their land they took everything from them and i think yeah the film was really sensitive to that and uh, i think they did a really good job of it yeah, it was a ni- it was a nice way of uh, approaching a very hard topic for sure for sure yeah yeah no absolutely what? did you did you have any sense of of that feeling about the film like did was there any underlying themes that you think that you felt when you were watching it i don't i don't know like the uh, one one big thing is is um the way the movie was made versus the real story of hugh glass like most of the things happened and he wanted to get back and and uh kill both jim bridger and, and fitzgerald but then when he found bridger the younger guy he forgave him because he was 19 and just like they did in the movie but then in the the with Fitzgerald it's not necessarily sure if he managed to join the army and then was safe from retaliation from Glass or if Glass actually forgave him as well which puts it like maybe this whole thing for Hugh Glass was a story of resilience and forgiveness rather than this uh, search for retaliation right the story the story for the underlying thing if if, as you asked it's more like the resilience of a person can be really really good if you have a goal that you're working towards even if it is far away like you want to get back and retaliate for uh, on, on on these two people you want to go back and kill these people and that's what you're keeping you alive throughout right, right, the right. hardships so that was quite a cool like the same thing as we were talking about castaway like mindset finding something to work for finding something to live for i was just thinking the same thing yeah yeah um some of the some of the kind of technical aspects of the film and um, which yeah. i really liked the the kind of let's say the outdoor bushcraft related things um the bear pelt so mm. the bear that he kills, he ends up wearing it for most of the film, which I thought was a really cool little nod. My only yeah. gripe about it was that they seemed to be able to skin and tan the, the hide in the in the space of an evening, uh, which I don't know if that's even possible or not. Or if, you know, can you wear a hide like an hour after having skinned an animal? Is that possible? Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. If you don't, if yeah. you, if you don't, you don't care about the... Uh fat and uh, meat that's left on the hive you hide you can definitely do it like it's it's fully pliable okay uh, as soon as you take it off the animal it's just yeah you can definitely do that okay yeah no i was wondering about that because they have it placed over him when they make the stretcher and they're they're carrying him and it looks mm. very um it looks very refined so to speak there doesn't mm. seem like there's much fat or anything left on the on the hide but I love the fact that he wears it just as like as a concept. Um, he's carrying this uh, this bear on his back, and it's ultimately yeah. providing him with warmth after yeah. it basically being the cause of this uh, horrible situation he's found himself in. He's now using the bear hide as as a means to uh, warm himself, which I thought was 
kind of a cool the respect for nature as, aside from you know he doesn't I don't think he place, places any blame on the animal or doesn't hate the animal for what it did to him I think he just accepts it is what it is and is still able to utilize the resources that that bear can give him and um, it shows a little bit in the movie with uh, when Bridger is sitting there carving the claws out like a, yes. a necklace out of the claw and, and one of the other trappers says that those don't belong to you and yeah. then he said, no, it's for him. It's like, it's an acknowledgement of the... Respect. The he, the, yeah, respect, but also the, the feat that he managed to take down this bear. Yes. Without yeah. anything but like his own hands, more or less, of course. Exactly, yeah. And I think that that guy then that, that makes the necklace out of the bear claws puts it in his backpack, and his satchel. Yeah. And then I believe I mean, he gives it to the, Indian, the Native American... Uh, yeah, helps the funny guy. Yeah, yeah, that was a beautiful scene, man. Yeah, um, that's that... interesting that that scene, like he, because he, it is when he gets out of the water uh, after being floating down, if I remember correctly. Yes, but he still has the uh, bear fur, yeah. and that fur must be so heavy when he gets out of the water. I thought the same, and also like, how did his clothes not instantly just freeze to his body? Yeah. Right. Uh, well, yeah, but yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and then he, and I noticed something that I told Hannah. It's like, I've definitely done that before instantly. Like, you know, when you get out, out of something cold or... You put you your hands in your mouth. You take, yeah, put your hands in your mouth or you blow yeah. on them or something like that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, of course, that, that's a very small detail. But I was like, yep, yep. I yeah, no, that. that's so funny, man. Because I, 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 t- I noticed that as well myself. It's like he, he like puts his hand into like half a fist almost and then like... Yeah. Like, yeah, you I mean you do do that, and and the fact that the film was shot on location and he really did do those things, he, that that feeling of coldness was probably completely like it didn't even need to be acted, you know. Right. But, but what then, I really, uh, yeah, go on. Yeah. Uh, I was gonna, just going to say with the uh, with the pony guy that he meets that um, yes, uh, he joins for a bit. Uh, that he had all those big fires going true true uh when he met, it was it was that to fend off the wolves i'm not sure but that would make sense i think it was yeah because he does this there's in that exact... when he meets by the buffalo that's right he meets by the buffalo guy uh, and then he yeah. then he gets a bit piece of meat and one of the wolves runs past on, yeah and one of the wolves mm. runs past on fire so he's obviously using the fire as a defensive mm. mechanism but what i found mm. really um really good amazing about that scene was this um you know, the, the fact that he gives him the liver, which is like a very, yeah. uh, it's a very um, important piece of the meat in, in a lot of cultures. And I would imagine, I mean, I'm literally just spitballing here, but I imagine the liver would have such a, a poignant role in a hunt in Native American culture as well. Because um, when a wolf pack takes down an animal, the the head wolf or whatever you want to call him will take the liver. It's the most nutrient dense part of an animal and the, the the lead dog will always take the liver and what i found interesting was that he's he's crawls over to this man uh who he's being completely submissive towards him um like you know in a very submissive uh pose he's kneeling down he's crawling towards him begging for food and this pony guy he throws him the liver he doesn't throw him like a random piece of meat and it kind of just shows um for me, it kind of indicates that that character is like a very kind of, uh, you know, 
you know, he sees all men as equal, maybe. I don't know, like compared to what you what you would find with a white man who would think that in those times that a Native American would be subhuman, so to speak. And it kind of really speaks to that to that character where he does throw him the liver, um, which is arguably the most nutritious part of the animal um, because he feels like he needs it. And I just thought that was a really interesting uh, sort of little nod to um, again, it's just it, it's a testament to the research I think done in that film. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. The 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 only thing I thought of when he ate it because he when he first ate it he was like gagged a bit. It's like oh, I wonder if it's like this um, what's it called like the refeeding syndrome when you've been malnourished or or been starving for quite some time and you eat too much that could sort of lead to your death as well in the in the in the worst case scenario. If you overeat too fast, yeah. yeah, I think it also had to do with the fact that his throat was uh, was slashed by the bear. Yeah, it was probably hard yeah. to swallow. But <laughs> but actually, also true that um, yeah, true. But that that gag reflex was actually um completely real because mm. uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was actually a vegetarian, and they oh, had right. um yeah, and they had they had originally done that scene with a fake liver, and it just didn't look good, and and Leo decided. Um, to actually eat a real liver and he said it was oh, wow. one of the hardest things he's ever had to do in his life and he said he'd never do it again um, so that was a real raw piece of liver that he was eating actually but speak, speaking about his uh, neck how he uh, closed up the wound there with gunpowder cauterized it yeah cauterized it yeah that was cool man so when he got that his fire lit cool. yeah, yeah with his little flint and steel so yeah. the Vikings would have well how medieval times really how you would seal a wound just put something super hot on it and melt it basically yeah yeah for sure and that was hard to watch a lot of, oh, yeah yeah it's a lot of neat neat little details in it what do you think about the uh, fish trap that he makes yeah i was going to mention that to you um i thought that was cool i i would have assumed that it would make more sense to build it the other way he built it with a, so the so the fish trap basically and I could be completely wrong about this so correct me if I'm wrong and survival experts or the likes but the curvature so he basically builds this one way trap for fish to land in on the side of the river and it's a very simple pile of rocks basically in like a U formation but my understanding um, he he builds the U with the back end facing upriver where the water would have been coming down from, would it not make more sense to build it the other way so that fish could would move into it from coming upriver and then not being able to come out of it by, you know, by moving against the current? Does that I make sense? He, yeah, it makes sense. But I thought he made it uh, the U, sort of the deep end of the U up towards the current. I mean, yeah. I mean maybe it did it the other way, like like you're thinking. But yeah, like the the only thing with, with that one, I I thought um, like of course the armchair uh, person coming in now with like right, he could have if he was you know in in a in a situation where he were was able to wade out into freezing cold water with all the clothes on without regarding them getting wet, he probably could have made some sort of a spare spear. Yes. And not have to stand in water to catch the fish. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And those 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 little uh, fish traps, they do work. Like we, the cabin that we had 
down in the in the river in the town where I grew up or at the river the town where I grew up we used to make these little we call them uh, harbors okay so we they were never intended as fish traps we just like to build structures in on the on the shoreline of the island that we had the cabin on and every now and then a fish would swim in there and not be able to get out and then we either took the rocks away or we just threw a fishing lure with a fishing fishing rod in there and see if we could catch okay. it. <laughs> uh, they, they do work, those types of traps, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So just to clarify, the U, so let's say the bottom end, it's like, let's imagine an upside down U. Yeah. Does the, does the upside down U have to face upstream or downstream? So you want to have, um, for me, for it to make sense, you want to have the... Uh, the back you going up towards the stream so that the arms of the U, yeah, if you will, yeah. uh, is going towards the water. That makes sense. So they're going up towards the stream. Yeah. So that if a fish swims in, yeah, they will have to turn around and then swim back up. Back upstream. Yeah, that's what I thought. But as yeah. far as I remember in the film, I could be wrong, but it felt like he built it backwards. Okay. It felt to me anyway. I, 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 I remember it differently, but yeah. maybe, maybe, maybe I'm wrong on that, but <laughs> yeah, but either way, I mean, yeah, as you said, it is an accurate, it is a, an effective way of catching fish. Um, if you did need to do that in a survival situation is create a U for a U shape, yeah. um, with the bottom of the U, so an upside down U facing up river so that when a fish swims into it, it has to swim backwards back up the current in order to get out of it. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 No, yeah. I, I mean, uh, for all intents and purposes, beautiful film. I mean, as I said, I've watched it a hundred times. Yeah. I love it so much. Um, I will continue to watch it. And, and it's, in my opinion, one of the most accurate, or not even accurate, I don't know if it's accurate or not, but the most r- real worlds that I've ever encountered on this big screen like it feels like a very real world that they built on that screen so i, I it, yeah beautiful film and I, and I think the um one reason why it is so good and, and beautiful it, it is because it is falling into the category of what people like you and i would want to watch you know a good well-made movie yeah with you know like every everyone has to you have this meme going around with uh, or around in in winter of um, some old fur trappers or yeah. just reenactment guys with big fur coats and everything. It's like yeah. you know, winter's coming and this is my bushcraft. Buddies. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> it's like it's, 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 it's speaking to that you know feeling of like all right, you know, all these old skills, old world skills kind of thing. You you see the the metal fork and flint, get a tinder bundle going, yeah, yeah. and you know all of these things and when the the pony guy makes a um the re-shelter and heats the rocks up and gets the rocks into the shelter with him yeah so he has you know heat for a long time and all those things is like yeah this is sort of our hobby is, that's just being portrayed in a big hollywood movie that's quite cool yeah and i guess i guess for as well just to realize that for at one point this was just how people had to survive they had to use all of these skills yeah. on a daily basis it wasn't fun it wasn't a hobby they couldn't walk away from it and go home to their porcelain toilets and and you know uh proper beds or <laughs> like it was it was a yeah, exactly. hard life 
It was a hard life. And it was a, it was a luxury if you had coffee. I mean, imagine that. Yeah, right. <laughs> Man, I have some trivia here that I, I can run over real quick before we, uh, yeah. we finish up. So we've kind of touched on most, most of them already, but I'll read through them anyway, just to, to kind of recap. Um, so as I was saying, due to the production uh, being behind schedule, the snow melted during the location shoot in Canada before filming was complete. Uh, with summer rapidly approaching, there was no choice but to relocate the entire production to southern Argentina, um, where there were similar winter conditions. Um, so that speaks to, as you were saying, this weird discrepancy between um, not really knowing what season it was supposed to be in the, in the scenes. Yeah, the amount of snow, yeah. Yeah, and I think, as I was saying, I think that led to DiCaprio producing that documentary film Before the Flood. Um, DiCaprio chose to devour a raw slab of bison liver, even though he is a vegetarian. He also had to learn how to shoot a musket, build a fire, speak two Native American languages and study uh, with a doctor who specializes in ancient healing techniques. DiCaprio called it the hardest performance of his career. I mean, that's some method acting right there. Yeah. It won him. It won him his first, uh, Academy Award. I mean, sometimes I think it was just for the sake that he needed to have one. Yeah, maybe they were like, "Come on!" He did a really good job, but at the same time, like it was, it was overdue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, dude, uh, DiCaprio is one of those one of those people that for a long time I wrote them off, um, but then he just out of nowhere just started producing unbelievable performances in every film I saw him I was like man Leo is the fucking shit man he's such a cool guy yeah. I love Leo man he's, yeah. he's a he's a badass yeah he's such an amazing actor um the film was shot on location in Argentina and used only natural light with a few rare exceptions uh, and I believe that this makes the movie as we were saying so cold and so grim and so real because there's no there's no stages there's no lighting there's no false it's all real you know the origin of the origin of the title is rooted in the french word or the french verb revenir which means to return revenant in french also uh, means um spirit or ghost which is another uh, interesting kind of theme within the film this idea of a spirit world or a ghost world or uh, kind of a higher plane that he kind of frequents a couple of times in the movie where he's close to death. Um, so I thought that was a really nice double meaning on the word to return, but then also the the ghost or the spirit of his his dead wife yeah. and, and, and his son and, and that kind of thing. That's really neat. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then finally, Arthur Redcloud, who was the Pawnee person that you were talking about, um, incorporated the teachings and medicines of his grandfather, who was a shaman, uh, into his character um, he himself uh, built the medicine hut that he puts um, glass in um, based on memory from his grandfather's teachings alright yeah so that like building the, the hut for the, the kind of the, the steam hut for, for glass when he's close to death and kind of obviously being uh, influenced by an infection or whatever in his back he kind of has a fever um, this pawnee character builds a, a frame a shelter for him, puts hot rocks in there, steams it up for him, keeps him warm, covers it over with his bare fur and probably saves his life. 
Um, yeah. But yeah, he he all of those uh, methods were were him doing it from memory of his grandfather's teachings, which man, that's just lends cool. the authenticity. Yeah, the authenticity of the film is just next yeah, they level. De- they definitely put effort into this one, and it is a yeah. it is a good one, and it it is fun. Like I I highly encourage anyone that's uh, been bothered to listen this far into this episode to yeah. watch these movies or any other movies that you might have an uh, idea of that could fall into the category of outdoors bushcraft survival or whatever you want to uh, call it yeah. look at it in the sort of perspective of like studying it a little bit it's super super fun it is a lot of fun to do that yeah, I had I had a lot of fun recording this episode and I've been really looking forward to it. And actually, dude, this is our longest episode ever, I believe. I think we're almost at two and a half hours now. Um, I think if not oh, more. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> uh, just probably the longest trial before episode that's ever been recorded. But I was really looking forward to this. As I said at the beginning, I'm... I'm yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, I'm super into... I love my films. I'm a huge film nut. And to be able to incorporate bushcraft and films and look at themes and cinematography and the authenticity of the of the the skills for these characters i think yeah i mean dude it was it was a lot of fun i think we should do another one i mean i'm sure we could find yeah, I, mean, I think we could find another three films for sure definitely and and if there's anyone that, that that's listened this far that has an idea of three films or you know can come up with suggestions or something like that that would be highly appreciated absolutely yeah, and, and even on the films that we did touch upon, if anybody has any thoughts or opinions on it, feel free to drop me an email. Um, you can contact us through our website, trailbyfire.net. Um, and you'll be able to see there, um, there's a contact section at the top nav and, and that'll go straight to my email. Um, otherwise, you can drop me a, a line on Instagram and I, I can respond to you. Um, but, Jeremias, that was fucking great fun really good fun i really yeah, enjoyed that episode. yeah thanks it's thanks for uh, the, uh thanks for taking the time to watch the films and research these with me and 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 bounce bounce heads yeah no i'm happy to do it it was a lot of fun i really enjoyed it it was a as i said it was a it's a great way of watching movies that you've already seen uh with fresh a fresh pair of eyes and uh it's just fun to talk through a movie out loud and say like huh maybe that's a good one or maybe I would have done it a little bit differently yeah. being that yeah. arms are a person that um, you don't want to be but uh, you take the time to be that one yeah no exactly no it was really good fun man just really quickly before I let you go and I probably maybe I should have said this to you before we started recording but I think it's interesting to mention that I have I'm currently building a Patreon for the for the page um nice yeah i think if for people who uh have been listening or following along on my personal page or you know i think i've mentioned it on here i'm going to be moving to finland at the end of the month um and i think the fact i don't have any like official in for want of a better word uh employment lined up so i think the advantage of that and i think now or never um i'm going to try and make the podcast be um a much more significant part of my week um and that that's down to like exclusive content uh creating more episodes for you guys getting more interviews 
Um, just yeah, I, I'm still kind of playing with the, with a few ideas, but there will be a Patreon uh, set up uh, pretty soon, probably later on in the month, and I will let you guys know further in the details. But it will be amazing um, for all you guys who have supported the show from episode one, if you could. Um, yeah, help us out, and uh, you know, even the price of a pint of beer, uh, you know, whatever a month would be would be absolutely appreciated. Of course, there's going to be benefits to all of those things, um, exclusive content, some merchandise, and things like that, um, which I'm kind of working working through right now. But, um, but yeah, that's going to be something. And then also, it's something that I never mention, which is if you listen to the podcast, please go on iTunes and like. Uh, or you know rate and review the podcast it, it's really important for us to be able to push the podcast into a more um into a wider audience i guess you know and i think between myself and Jeremias, i think we're gonna keep this thing going pretty strong um yeah i'm happy to i mean it's uh it's a lot of fun discussing all of these different topics and uh taking it up uh switching it up another gear it's seems to a sensible thing to do yeah absolutely and and i'm gonna be able to make it more of my my day-to-day work as opposed to just a side project um so expect to see a lot more stuff happening with the podcast in the future um and yeah so as i said when when i set up the patreon i will let you guys know but appreciate any support that you guys have for us um go on apple podcasts and like and or you know rate and review the podcast and all that kind of stuff and yeah we'll see you in a couple of weeks with the next episode i don't know what it's going to be yet but i'm sure it'll be fantastic but yeremias thank you so much for coming on the podcast with me today it's been an absolute pleasure to have you again and uh yeah i hope to have you on again soon for sure just let me know when and where absolutely man. sounds great